Warning, this podcast contains scenes of explicit nonsense and lore. Previously on the Resident Evil podcast. I mean, I'm not as much of a canon stickler as, as some people, and that's, that's no slight against anyone who is. Changes with Operation Javier, things like that I didn't like because they were just so unnecessary. You know, the changes didn't benefit the plot, whereas the changes with the Plaga did benefit the plot. The original game exists. We don't want to make a one-for-one remake you know, exactly the same. We want to do something different and interesting with it. With Salazar's fight, I'll put my hand up in the air and say I prefer the original. <laughs> and lo and behold, there's also a parasitic POW that just happens to be dug up in the nearby castle. This feels like a proper sequel to Remake 2. Resident Evil Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Resident Evil Podcast, where some might call us the voices of Gaia, and we are still more determined than ever to establish a kingdom where beauty has absolute authority. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, firing off torpedo kids left, right and centre. Let's see who's joining us today. He's everyone's favourite Dongua. It's the Batman. Good evening. This season, he'll be mostly wearing organic high heels. It stars Tyrant. Hello. And finally, look out, it's a monster. Oh, no, no, it's just Rombi. Hello. Coming up on today's podcast, we are delighted to be taking a retrospective look back at Resident Evil Dead Aim. Yes, it's 20 years since this quirky spin-off hit the shelves. And what better excuse to look back in true REP style with a hybrid happy birthday retrospective analysis. So we'll be taking that deep dive into Dead Aim 20 years on, see how it holds up. We'll also be catching up on some of the news before ending with, of course, another Neptune's Biohazard quiz. So let's start with the news. First bit of news, Resident Evil Death Island is now out in some areas. (laughs) It's been a very odd, scattered release. But if you live in particular parts of the world, you can not only see Death Island, you can go to the cinema and see it, which is rather exciting. So it got releases in Mexico, uh, Philippines, Taiwan, I think, as well, has had had a release. Reception seems to be actually pretty good, I think. I have not really seen any because I'm trying to keep out of spoilers. Yeah, yeah, that's understandable. I think Alex CVX Freak has seen it, and he's. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't read the spoilers like that. Um, but he, he seemed to think it was a an enjoyable ride. I think was the um the overall impression I got. The best of the CGI movies, which I don't know how that qualifies in your own personal opinion, but I'm well. I'm looking for at least. But yeah, so it's not out yet. Generally, in America, most of Europe, so we're going to have to wait a bit longer. Um, For all UK people, because mainly a UK podcast, still not available to pre-order on Amazon yet. Or anywhere, I don't think. So um, they're pushing it a little bit. I do keep checking daily on Amazon to see if I can get it. Because it, it should be available in DVD, Blu-ray and, and UHD, which would be, um, be interesting. It may, I think Amazon France, I think you can, you can get it. But the UK Amazon, not yet. Rob Batman, what have you heard? I think you're 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 a bit more liberal on finding out what people have been saying, John especially. Um well I've still kept myself spoiler free, but I've been reading a few of the non spoiler opinions and mm. 
I think it's you know it's it's pretty much what we expected. I think it's a bit of a hot mess, but because it's sort of a brand new thing and it's fresh in everyone's eyes, everyone's kind of swooning over it, and because of the characters involved, everyone seems quite pleased with Jill's role in the film. There's a lot of buzz about Jill and Leon in particular. Oh, yeah. Again, I don't know uh, the, the spoilers or any of the specifics, but a majority of opinions I've read is it's just by the numbers. You know, if you've seen the other CG Resident Evil films, then this one's not going to be much different. It's just more of the same. But still, looking forward to it. Rob, any comments? Any any pre- no, uh, preliminary I've, I've opinions? Avo- no, I've avoided reading anything about it. I, I, um, I know it's coming to a local streaming root service for rent on the twenty sixth, the same day it comes out overseas. So, like form Blu Ray and all that sort of stuff. So, I don't know if it'll even get a physical release here, but at least I know it's streaming. So, keep an eye out in case there is a physical release overseas um, that I can get reasonably easy. But yeah, I'll, I'll take it as it comes. Well, rest assured, everyone, we'll of course be bringing you our uh, review of Death Island. Uh... Uh, last bit of news hasn't been too much. The achievements for Resident Evil 4 remake have seemingly, I'll say leaked, but have been, I think they've shown on Steam, I think they were, suggesting something, or a kind of updated achievement, suggesting something is coming soon. I wonder what that could possibly be, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Se- separate ways is imminent. <laughs> should be, it should be quite exciting, I think. Um, I'm I'm quite excited to go back to the world of uh, remake four. I'm only just kind of getting myself over it, but <laughs> I'm 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 really excited to see what they do with Ada and uh, Wesco. That's kind of tease what we got in the in the in the main game. So um, I'm hoping it's um, just as good as as the main title. Absolutely, yeah. And it would be nice if it comes out relatively quickly. I wasn't really expecting it until towards the end of the year. Mm. Um, but it would be nice if it came out maybe August, September time while it's the base game still relatively fresh in everyone's minds. Like you've just said, I'm very much intrigued to see where they go with it in terms of Ada and Wesker and whether there's going to be a sort of expanded Ada's report and things like that. And yeah, I'm uh, very much looking forward to it. As we discussed in previous RE4 podcasts, it, you know, the, it looks like there's there's a bit of a deviation with the with the Plagas and, you know, this kind of new Amber piece, which is a, a bit new to the lore. Now, unlike perhaps some changes to like Remake 3 with the kind of antiviral, you know, the kind of cure, that didn't really change up future titles too much. But th- this potentially could have an impact on RE5, depending on you know, where they want to go with it. So, yes, I think you're right. And it, and it um, a bit more information about the amber and the superior species perhaps would be uh, interesting just to see if that does tie in to RE5 or, you know, as that kind of conclusion were, that this is a bit of a separate timeline, potentially. We shall see, we shall see. But, yes, um, obviously there'll be more coverage of that. And uh, we're hopefully looking forward to a um, uh, an announcement from Capcom soon. Perhaps we might get another RE, you know, uh, showcase in the next couple of months. That is it for the main news. We'll quickly turn our attention to site news. Where, as first, we always want to thank any new patrons who have joined us. And a uh, big shout out goes to Tinked87. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. If anyone's interested in Patreon and what we do, it's more of a uh, you know thank you. And we're genuinely grateful for anyone that that can support us. It really it really helps keep the website going and podcast and you know and uh, you know hosting and things like that really important. So a big thank you to them. If if you're interested, you head over to Patreon. You can search for. REP or head over to the website and click on the 
Patreon link. You'll be able to see it at the bottom there. Talking of website updates and websites generally, we have had a big one. Yes, that's right. The uh, law room over on REP has been updated quite substantially because of the amazing work done by uh, the Batman here. The, because we have new translations all from Resident Evil Remake. And that, as I said, that's had a big update. We've now got tra- a full translated versions of the Keite Shinsho, uh, the official navigation book, the capture guide, and more importantly for most people in the West, Wesker's Reports 1 and 2. And there's a bit of gun law porn as well there with the Samurai Age story, which uh, we, we know people like the gun law. So there we go. So, John, you've done a fantastic job with all these big, um, big updates here. What, what's your, over? you know... What can what can people heading over to the website expect from these? Well, yeah, it's just a lot of um, backstory and background material, which will hopefully enhance your enjoyment of the game. You know, extra lore on the characters, their equipment, the guns, the organisations, and obviously Wesker's reports, quite self-explanatory, goes into the background of Umbrella and his history and the T-Virus project, etc. It's just adding, you know, meat to the bones of the storyline, really, because as we've discussed more than once, you know, there's a lot of storyline in Resident Evil doesn't actually make it into the final game. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background, and Resident Evil Remake is no exception. So, yeah, I would recommend anyone who is got a passing interest in the storyline to definitely stop by the law room and uh, check it out a mm. couple of highlights i wanted to pick out on was in the kaito shinso there's the commentary by benny someone i can't pronounce his surname um matsuyama thank you thank you very much and What's cool, because, you know, there's always a lot of talk about what's the canon version of Remake or, you know, the, the Mansion incident. What's the canon version of RE2? And, you know, and there's no real there's no real definitive answer. You can work out what some things have to have happened because of subsequent storylines. But you, you're you kind of left up to your own devices. Now, if you've ever read, like, the archives, Resident Evil archives, that kind of puts an extract, you know, a, a version forward. But um, the Benny Benny's commentary is quite helpful, as that kind of implies that 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 that's possibly the most accurate, well, not accurate one, but that's another pretty good interpretation of of who does what. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it gives you sort of a clear picture of who was where and who did what during the mansion incident. But you know, whether that's the definitive route through mm-hmm. it or not, you know, I think I think it's still up to the player at the end of the day. These sort of Benny Matsuyama texts are more sort of novellas that sort of mm. su- supplement the book um, and he's wrote similar storylines for uh, Resident Evil 5, Resident Evil 4 which we've already done and Resident Evil 3 as well and Code Veronica so there's still quite a bit to do. The next law room update is probably going to be for Biohazard 5 I've already done most of it we've got the BSAA desktop which is probably one of the best pieces of supplemental material for the whole series it goes into amazing detail provides a lot of backstory for the events leading up to Resident Evil 5 that goes hand in hand with Adam's blog and the BSAA observation diary as well which was originally published in Famitsu but written under the supervision of uh, Capcom and also there is a promotional booklet called Resident Evil 5 Declassified, which was never released publicly. It was only made available to the press. And again, that's got lots of information on the characters and organisations, etc. And then finally, there's the Biohazard 5 Kaita Shinsho, which again um, goes into really quite substantial depth on the characters, the storyline. So that's still going to take a bit of time to finish, but hopefully we'll get that out sometime in the next couple of months. A final bit of site news very quickly, very quickly, and of course, links in very nicely with today's podcast. Um, the team gathered a couple of weeks ago 
to play Resident Evil Dead Aim in preparation of this podcast. And we have done a uh, Dead Aim lore playthrough on our YouTube page. So uh, this was streamed live, technical glitches as always, but not, to, it, it, you know, it, it's it's great. Uh, Sean did a fantastic job in getting that set up for us. But you you can play, you know, we go through the entire game with with the team kind of chatting, not just about, you know, what's going on at that moment, but trying to get as much of the kind of background lore into the into the discussions and trying to pin down some of the dates and uh, the importance, perhaps, of the Spencer reign. So thank you, Sean, for that, for, for hosting. That was uh, excellent. Welcome, welcome. But it's good fun. They're always good fun. We've, that's the second one we've done. We've kind of done a Guiden one, and now we've done Dead Aim. So I think we'll probably have to do Revelations next. I was literally <laughs> going to say the same thing, yeah. <laughs> another, another boat. <laughs> it has to be a boat, yeah. <laughs> then we could do, maybe just do the, the, the Annabelle section of, um, of RE7, because that's probably the most law-filled part anyway, but there we go. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> But they're good fun, and um, yeah, we, we had a good, good, good turnout and some good questions, and uh, yeah, head over to that, that's on YouTube now. That does finish our look at the news. We now turn our attention to why we are here today. We are celebrating 20 glorious years of Resident Evil. Dead aim. Cast your minds back if you can. Resident Evil on the PlayStation was in a poor state back in the early noughties. We had Code Veronica, but then the GameCube announcement came and the PlayStation 2 owners were left with just Survivor 2 as its consolation prize. But then, what's this? A new original story? Oh, it's Survivor 4. Mm. Hopes were very low, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you. Expectations minimal. But what emerged, renamed to be Dead Aim in the West, would be the beacon of hope and what would ultimately go on to be a template for future Resident Evils to come. Yes, we are REP. We love a bit of Dead Aim and hardly a podcast goes by without us jamming in a reference somewhere along the lines. (laughs) And today we let Heroes Never Die take centre stage once again in this 20-year happy anniversary retrospective. This discussion will sort of merge our usual happy birthday playthroughs experience with that of what you might expect on a 10-year retrospective podcast, simply because, similar to Survivor 1, the playthrough choices for the games don't don't deviate too much like they would perhaps in a mainline game. So we're kind of like merging our, our two themes into this one joyous occasion so let's let's go let's rewind and go back to the spencer reign so to kick off i think it's important that we have a quick brief overview of dead aim now where it sits in the franchise it especially of course with resident evil 7 and village very much taking kind of first person and ironically third person stance in the case of village something dead aim did as well and there's no better person to start than Stars Tyrant because Dead Aim back in episode four of the Resident Evil podcast, ladies and gentlemen, this was this was your debut. 
was. Uh, it was. So, I'll hand the reins. What are your brief impressions of Dead Aim and where does it sit for you? Well, whenever I've published like the tier list or anything like that, most people are always surprised of all the sort of choices that I do, whether I put you know, seven in the top tier and things like that. Dead Aim is usually hovering like the tier below top. And people always say, you know, Dead Aim that high, you know, you're ridiculous. And, and in all honesty, it, my opinion hasn't changed. I love it. I think it's... My, and, and my opinion of it remains as well as to why it's a special title for me, because it still represented a Capcom that finally showed they could make a Resident Evil title that had no real connection to the to the classic games, outside of a reference or two here or there in a file. And everything was made from original assets, there wasn't any imported stuff like there was in Survivor and things like that, it was essentially a built-from-the-ground-up original title, and yeah, okay, it was, it was wrapped in the trappings of a Survivor game, but... I just remember the summer it came out, we had two releases because we had a very delayed Zero release um, in the UK in 2003. Zero came out in 2002 in Japan, I think, and we had a, a very delayed release over here. We had, That was around the era when PAL releases were still upwards of like six months later from the Japanese releases. So that summer we had Zero and Dead Aim, and I remember be, being so much happier with Dead Aim as a title. It just it just ticked all those boxes because I wanted something fresh and something new and that's what Dead Aim was. And it just I just admired the bravery of it. The fact that you could actually just just totally remove yourself from the core storyline that everybody was expecting at that point, which is you know all the you know the going into the sort of heroes versus umbrella storyline and they kind of bypass that and they just do their own thing. They basically make a James Bond title with a Resident Evil rapping and it for me it just totally worked. It just totally worked. And as you know, now looking back twenty years later, to see some of some very early groundwork put in in terms of like just subtle things like typewriters not needing ink ribbons anymore, and just a, a much more linear sense of progression that Resident Evil Four would tend to borrow from. Um, you know, this was one of the first games that you could say it had you know being able to blast enemies in key hit zones okay it was only the critical hit mechanic but the point was it, it still it lent a bit more to skill if you like that resident evil 4 would obviously borrow later with things like that and i know some people are probably rolling their eyes and they'll say oh these these are stretches but they, they, they still start somewhere when you look back at a series legacy and dead aim is the beginning of a few of them um i'm not saying it it, it, it influenced really anything but you could say that some blueprints were placed in this one and, and just from a personal point of view so i'm not rambling too much yeah this is a very much a full circle moment for me on this podcast <laughs> because because of my enthusiasm towards dead aim i contacted you nick i begged to be on that um that you know whenever you cover dead aim i'd love to be on that one and and you, you invited me on and then that led on to the resident evil 5 podcast and that is Ladies and gentlemen, how I got my place here. If it wasn't for Dead Aim, that may never have happened. So I owe this, I owe that game a lot, and uh, it's nice to celebrate it today. Brilliant. I mean, it's testament to the fact that we did it as episode four. Shows how how much it was generally liked at the time. You know, we we had the whole series at that point up to 2012. We could have, you know, could have we did one. We could have picked two, three. We could have picked ages, but no. Episode four. We're going straight into Dead Aim. You know, we we were that enthusiastic about it. Rob B, what about you, my friend? Your over. What's your impressions of Dead Aim twenty years on? It's it's interesting that it's kind of what you've alluded to that it's got this legacy of kind of doing a few things before they became mainline franchise things, but then it becomes this kind of forgotten game for a lot of people because of its specificity of the platform and timing. Like, you had to have a PlayStation at the time to really appreciate it, and if you tried to pick it up now and play it, if you hadn't had that experience, you probably will find it a bit probably difficult and clunky just because, you know, 
it was of its time. It's funny though because I just think back to, to the reaction. Like I think we've, we, I think. Well, I'm not going to say I've got them on, but I think you guys have got nostalgia goggles on for it, which is fine, and that's no problem. And I, it's not that I don't like the game. I do. Don't get me wrong, but I do remember at the time that kind of in your opening that your, your the concept of you saying you know that we got Dead Aim on the PlayStation while the rest of the titles went to the GameCube, people were still pretty bitter about this because mm. they looked at this and went, this is what we're getting? <laughs> Seriously? Mm. <laughs> and then the Outbreak titles as well, depending on people's view at the time, were perhaps looked upon slightly better or slightly worse. It's very funny to see it in, in this one. I, I've always enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a fun little side romp. I, I thought it was interesting doing the first and third person perspectives and so those things have held up very well for me. I think it's slightly comical and a bit ridiculous and a bit over the top. And I think it's completely tongue-in-cheek and it definitely feels like a Roger Moore-era James Bond title in that respect. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely certainly got, got those vibes going on. Batman, what about you? Where do you see this game? I, I think Dead Aim is a bit of a strange beast. I mean, I'm probably not quite as enamoured with it as much as you guys are but i still have a soft spot for it you know for a gun survivor sequel it was nice to see the production values have been stepped up a notch and as you've said the experimental blend of first and third person worked pretty well i thought and the ship setting at the time was pretty unique um the spencer rain worked well at a creepy location story-wise i thought the game was fine you know it was the first title to take us beyond the 1998 timeline and it refrained from using established characters so it did make the universe feel bigger in that regard and I've always liked the setting of Umbrella trying to rebuild behind the scenes and using this ship to showcase its new products to clients from around the world. You know, and the ship was untraceable by the authorities. I thought that was a really cool concept. But what lets the game down for me is, is ultimately is it the lack of characters, an uninspired and frankly weird villain in Morpheus, and just a lot of really rather bland BOWs. Mm. And the game just feels really empty at times. And if you think, you know, the the plot essentially is a race against time to stop T-virus missiles from being launched against major cities of the world. It just feels like there's no sense of urgency or tension to the game. And like I said earlier, Dead Aim, it's a strange beast. It just feels like there's not really a lot going on. But that being said, I'm still quite fond of it. <laughs> it's got the ear. There's, there's certainly something about it. I think, Rob, I, I think your point is quite true. It, it's hard to convey that general disappointment that people were feeling at the, at the time. Resident Evil was a PlayStation franchise. At least it felt like it, you know. And then to, to, for it to suddenly first go to Dreamcast, admittedly, you know, as a sequel, and then, oh, well, it's coming back. Oh, that's okay. Oh, by the way, you're not getting this awesome-looking remake, and you're not getting the, the prequel to this awesome little remake. And by the way, Resident Evil 4 is going to be GameCube. You were like, oh... Oh, and, and then, then oh, <laughs> Survivor Two. Oh gosh. Yeah, and then and then and then it was Survivor Two, and then there was a delay. There was nothing for like a year, mm. and then you, we get Outbreak and Dead Aim. For, for me, I mean, it was I re distinctly remember getting excited about Dead Aim just because it w it all felt quite new, and because Resident Evil Four was still a way off, and Zero was a prequel. It kind of it, it didn't really progress the storyline. I wasn't expecting Zero to progress the storyline too much, and it you know probably didn't. So with Dead Aim, we you know we're fast forwarding to two thousand and two. You know, you know dizzying period of time, and you know it, it did feel like we we're going forward. And then you know the kind of build up was quite quite nice. You know the web the, the Capcom website would kept being updated with all the BOWs, and it was all it was still T virus, and it was still quite 
quite nice. You know, we had, t- we had two tyrants, we had blob, we had all sorts going on. And I said, when I played it, I, I, I was just blown away. And I, rem- I remember being blown away at being able to blow away a zombie with that critical hit analysis. Um, I just remember getting the first one and this, the zombie just being slammed against the wall in one of the kind of dormitory bedroom things and the blood just spearing down the wall i thought this is peak gaming (laughs) yes yes ning (laughs) it is total nonsense it is total nonsense and it is probably the last game i think i have nostalgia for and it's odd because it's probably just as action heavy really as say resident evil 4 Hmm. But you can it gets away with it because it's not Resident Evil 4, if you know what I mean. It yeah. is a spin-off. It's not supposed to be taken as seriously. And um, I, I don't know. I, have, I do uh, have... I think John's right. I do have nostalgic views for it. Absolutely. I do think the fact that... Um, I, I think quite a few of us were, were enamoured for it as well because it was like... Uh, I know you had the outbreaks and that was a final hurrah in its own way anyway with the, the sort of camp, you know, classic camera angles and, and whatnot to a sense. But this was like a, a modern spin on that gameplay the same way Resident Evil 4 was. But crucially, this was one of the last titles that had zombies in it for a while. Mm. And I think that's what enamoured quite a few people to it because... And, 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 and of course, the Hunters as well. Mm, yes. You know, these were two big staple, you know, enemies that were going to take an extremely lengthy hiatus after this year. And, you know, Outbreak File 2, of course. But, you know, once these sort of little trio of games were done, that was kind of it for zombies until the Chronicles games. Yeah. And even then, it's not even really in the sort of context and capacity that people were wanting, you know. An on-rail shooter wasn't, you know, your classic zombie experience. You don't, you don't get your classic shambling zombie experience in an on-rail shooter, do you? So, you know, when was... God, after after Dead Aim and the Outbreaks, when was the last time zombies became a staple enemy? You're talking, probably talking six, aren't you? I think we are. And, 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 you know, and I know that's a very small minor point, but zombies are a big thing in this series. I remember... The hysteria when you know there was the announcement that RE4 was not going to have zombies and not going to have a virus. How can this be Resident Evil anymore? People cried. Yes, don't don't think the modern discussions that you get on Twitter about yeah. this isn't Resident Evil on anything new. This is <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's why we're so sort of nonchalant about it, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> so we kind of we've touched upon the kind of gameplay legacy in in the sense we had this unique hybrid system of being able to switch between first and third person view on the fly. The idea being that you explored in third person around um, Spencer Rain predominantly. And then load up into first person when battle ensued. Something which, of course, Gaiden did as well, but uh, perhaps not as successfully as as Dead Aim. Another boat-themed game with hybrid options there. And this this was a bit... You could tell it was, it was a bit more arcadey because you kind of got those, those little bars on the side if there was a, a zombie to your left or right. But it certainly moved and felt better than perhaps Survivor 1 did. And I want to, before we go to the guys, uh, Sean, you, you, you want to talk about the, the way you move, because the, the kind of control, and John mentioned it as well, the controls of this game, I have to say, go, go and play them back on, it, it does take a little bit of getting used to. It, it does, yeah. It, it, it's not, I, I don't quite have muscle memory like I do for the, uh, you know, for the standard tank controls. And in, especially in first person, when you've played a lot of seven and eight, you, you're expecting the controls to perhaps be akin to the RE system, but you forget how good the RE engine is for it. So certainly in first person mm. mode, dead aim, a little bit janky. You know, Rob says that as well. Right. So yeah. the, the game is total jank. And, <laughs> and depending on any control system you use, there is some flaws and quirks. 
if you want to play it with the G-Con 2, then you get a very nice sort of hybrid. You move around with the D-pad on the back and you can, you know, obviously when you pull the trigger, you go into first person and you've got all the joy and ease of a light gun shooter. And it works pretty well. The problem is there is a sidestep mechanic, a strafe mechanic, if you will. And the G-Con doesn't, doesn't allow you to really do that whilst also aiming and shooting. It's a very strange, bizarre system. The mouse setup's quite similar as well. If you plugged a mouse into your PlayStation 2, the game would recognise it and you could use a mouse to shoot, but you would need to use a controller in your other hand to be able to move around. And again, because you had you don't have two hands on the controller, you're still kind of limited to that tank control movement, the, the forward, back, rotate left, rotate right. However, if you use a DualShock 2, or if you're emulating you know, an equivalent, it does have very, very loose faux modern shooter controls provided you press and hold the it's like the stealth button which is assigned to l2 or left trigger and once you do that once you go into first person mode with your r1 or right bumper depending on what control you're using when you're in first person mode as long as you hold that stealth button and you use your dual analogs the left analog stick will do what it does in a modern any kind of call of duty Gears of War or anything. So you, your left analog will move you forward, back, and strafe you left and right. And the right analog will rotate left and right, and it will also aim. The problem is there's no up, down, there's no like um, Y axis to your aiming. So it's very clunky because what the up, down part is on your right analog is you're just moving across air up and down, which feels a bit unintuitive. But as long as you can get your head around it, it's as close to like modern controls as you will have in a in a title more modern ironically than like resident evil 5 would have some six years later but it is hard to get your head around at first this is why of all the control methods i actually do recommend using the dualshock 2 because as fun as it is as a light gun game i don't think it's quite as cohesive as it wants to be because you are limited with that lateral movement that like sidestepping and strafing allows and that can only really be done effectively with a dualshock 2 we used a bit of a hybrid when we did the stream the other night, if anyone was watching. I actually played through most of the game using a controller, because, I, and, I, and I tried to sort of highlight how simple like the Pluto battles are, or the Morpheus battle with the charged particle rifle is, when you can you know, use the pillars to you know, create line of sight issues between you and Morpheus and stuff. And it, you can only really do that with a controller. But then for the final boss, where you're basically just shooting a teleporting head on a, on a blob, we switch to mouse controls and just completely trivialize that battle. There's a lot of options you can go for, and um, if anybody is curious and wants to know about how to set them up, just hit me up on Discord or Twitter and I'll point you in the right direction. That's really useful, yes, and there's lots of tips because the, the whack-a-mole end boss is quite, is, is quite a challenge, even, even, <laughs> even in the... No, in the... <laughs> the easier difficulties. I know when the game came out, the, the, the gun comp was properly advertised for for this title because if anyone played survivor one with the gun com one gun com 45 I think it, for, yeah gun com one cheekop yeah. thing yeah now I, I, it, that wasn't available in america but if you play the english version it was utterly tripe playing it with the with, with the gun com and so america you have not missed out on survivor playing it with with the original gun com because you had to shoot to move it, you know, and you so had to hold, you had to hold certain triggers down to, to to turn because the control was just a gun with buttons. Yeah. Whereas the G-Con Two has a D-pad on the back, which is why it's 
was able to work with games when i say work in air quotation marks with other games like dead aim yeah absolutely so the, the, with the guncom 2 as, as rob says you've got the kind of d-pad on there and it's one of my first memories of university is quite ironic I, well I, I turned up at uni and i heard i heard something some Bang, 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 bang. I was like, what's going on? And someone had their door open and they were playing with the guncom, playing Dead Aim. And I thought, oh my god, someone firstly, you, you don't you don't you don't meet many Resident Evil fans back 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 in dear. And for someone to be playing Dead Aim, I thought that was pretty cool. To be playing Dead Aim with a Guncom, I thought was really cool. And I had never seen it. And yeah, we had we had a brief a brief play. That was my own my only real flirtation with with the Guncom. But it's uh, an interesting interesting mechanic it is better with a gun con but it, it's still not perfect did, did anyone else get to play it in the time yeah i used the uh i got the g-con um oh, I, I i rented i think i rented out the i rented out something else i had dead aim i purchased the game and then i rented out something else that had the g-con with it and thought oh i might as well have a try at dead aim while i've got the gun yeah you say it's easier it is, and it's also not, if that makes sense. Like, certain elements are much easier to do. Like, the shooting, obviously, is more precise, as long as you set it up correctly. But it's still quite clunky going from shooting to exploration with the gun. It's just one of those things. There was no way either system was going to be right using the gun. Because mm. even though, as I said, it has this D-pad on the back, it's not exactly the most easy position. You have to, like, put the gun, like, aim the gun down, almost, in order to use the D-pad. And I guess the idea is that you you mimic the, the going from third person to first person is mimicking the idea of going, when you're in third person, I put the gun down and I'm using the D-pad and I only use the trigger to action things. And then when I aim up, I change the direction to first person and I'm shooting. But in theory, it sounds great and it should work well, but it's not quite perfect. But it definitely makes, like, especially that final fight, like a cakewalk compared to, like, using a controller, which is just unbearable. It is tough. Batman, what about you? DualShock? I think I'd missed out on too much. I was just happy to use the controller. And it's a shame, though. It's a shame that, you know, I'd love to say to people, you know, Grab a gun and have a go yourself. But uh, due to the unique way modern televisions function, uh, the use of light guns is now very much a, a dying art. Um, there are some, because I, I watch um, a couple of video reviews, there's a lot of very dedicated people trying to bring them back using different methods on HDTVs. But it, it is something, it's very hard to replicate because the whole point of these is that they use the, I think they, they use the, the, the tubes of the CRT in the back to copy the light. I, I don't know how it works but it's, it's very i think it's my understanding is it's the 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 trigger sends a pulse signal that's read directly pointing at which part of the screen which reads back to the to the gun which tells it where it was pointing on the screen it's it is quite complicated but it essentially yeah uses part of the light diodes to figure out where the bounce back is some clever clocks came up with it and unless you've got a crt floating around in your house it's and a, and a gun con. Ironically, I have a lot of PS1 gun games, and I have no gun G-Con 1 or 2, which I really should probably try and find and pick up, because I do have an old CRT that would be quite fun to blast. Yes. To crack out. Some classic games. Okay, so that's kind of like talking about some of the, the kind of various options that you can play when you're playing this game. But otherwise, I said, most people will be picking up the gun con, um, sorry, picking up the, the DualShock and playing it normally. It, it, it controls relatively normally i suppose to some of the classic re's it's just it takes a bit of getting used to 
generally speaking, you're not going to be moving. It is a kind of same sort of scenario. It's point, stop, shoot. You can move in first person, as Sean has kind of said, but generally don't. So, yeah, it, it can be a bit, as you said, uh, janky. If I want to put it in an ideal world, the gun is perfect for the shooting part. The controller is perfect for the exploration part, but neither does the other thing correctly 100%. So if you have the controller, the shooting's not particularly great. And if you have the gun, then the shooting's great and the controlling of the <laughs> regular like exploration is not the greatest. So it's like you yeah. kind of almost like it would be almost better if you had two controllers <laughs> to do it. One no, gun, one. I, I think that's a perfect uh, encapsulation of, of the issues that you're facing. Uh, neither perfect. Nice idea. Nice. <laughs> we don't talk about a lot about this usually on the podcast, but this game, because it's on the PlayStation 2, is, is a bit like the kind of outbreaks, really. It's slightly lost to time, and uh, Capcom don't really acknowledge Dead Aim much. So if, if, if it's a game you're interested in playing, you don't really have many options other than picking up a PS2 and, and finding Dead Aim, which thankfully isn't too much of a challenge. But as you said, when, when you plug in a PS2 into your into your modern TV, even if you've got a component cable, which is going to you know bring it up to glorious 480i or you know or 576i or 480... Actually, uh, it does do it in 60 hertz. You, you can play it in 60 hertz, which is quite nice. It doesn't look as good as it could graphically because you're on because you're on um, HD TVs. So emulation has become a bit of a uh, way of playing it. And I wanted to ask Sean, because obviously Sean's a streamer uh, for a a lot of these things. Dead Aim was historically quite a hard game to emulate, and it took a long time for the clever busybodies that were were able to get it going. How how have you found emulation for it, Sean? Uh, Yeah, so for for people who are unaware, the the, the sort of most well-known and well-used emulator is uh, PCSX2. It's a very, very powerful emulator and can do the majority of PS2 stuff with, with relative ease on most modern systems now. There is some caveats to that and Haunting Ground, you know, just for an example, is one of those sort of classic Capcom titles that still to this day doesn't really quite run 100% as it would on native hardware. And Dead Aim was another one. You know, Capcom must have some some tricky engines. It's not been too bad, but it's a little bit demanding and... It creates strange because I think the game runs in a very quirky resolution. I actually don't know what resolution it runs in, but if you just try and run it like on a default setting, um, you get strange lines that run down the screen if you try and upscale the resolution to anything beyond its sort of native resolution. You know, one of the perks of having you know an emulator is the fact that you can force higher resolutions on classic games and 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 make them potentially look amazing. Uh, so when you try and do that with Dead Aim, you just get some strange visual quirks, and it's not always that hot. Later builds and whatnot had, do allow you to tick a few settings and can get it running in 1080p and beyond, up to 4K and looking pretty good. The game's presentation just down to how it has always been made is always a little bit fuzzy so even if you really do crank it up to 4k it's always going to have a, a lot of softness to it and that's that's perfectly natural but the key thing is to get rid of these strange black lines that appear uh, vertical black lines that literally run down the image and can totally ruin it and you get around it just through clicking a, a setting and again if anyone is struggling with it just hit me up and i'll, I'll try and help you and talk you through it um but you can have a relatively smooth experience now on reasonable hardware my pc is an 11 year old alienware it can still run it in 60 frames a second so it's decent now and crucially 
the emulator can emulate the mouse. Mm. Whether you want to try and make the mouse, your mouse, your PC mouse, mimic uh, the G-Con or just simply emulate a mouse, that's quite easy to do. You just need a couple of plugins, uh, which sound all complex to some people, but it, you know, emulation's one of those things that it's intimidating at first when you see the wealth of possibility that it offers, but once you sort of get into it, uh, it it's really not that bad. And as long as you've got someone that can help you and talk you through it, Dead Aim is very achievable on most people's PCs these days. It's arguably the definitive way to do it. Well, it's the only way you can do it if you if you don't have a PS2 kicking about. And this is the sad thing about Sony's approach to backwards compatibility, is the fact that Dead Aim is absolutely unavailable unless you have a PlayStation 2 in your house, which is a, yeah, it is. Which is a rant for another time. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it's poor. It's, it's really poor. And prices are only going up on these PS2 games, yeah, aren't they? Survivor, Code Veronica aside, but that's available. But Survivor 2, Dead Aim, Outbreak Fire 1 and 2, prices are starting to bump up for these games as they. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to put any controversial statements out on our very, our, our very, uh, you know, levelled and easygoing podcast. But it, I would not condemn anybody seeking emulation to play this game because I have very passionate views about games such as this and the outbreaks being consigned to hardware that is 23 years old now it seems preposterous to me that you cannot play these games unless you literally keep this hardware kicking about i'm very fortunate in my you know in my house i have a room i can dedicate to classic systems and things like that so i still have all of mine i've never really got rid of any of my old consoles but i appreciate you know with things that you know i'm very lucky to have that and that and that's that's fine so the only other option if you don't have that is to emulate and we live in a world now where i don't condemn anybody to do that because otherwise these titles get lost to time and it it seems ridiculous it is a big shame. It is a big shame. That does bring us on nicely, actually, to uh, because you're talking about some of the softness of the of the emulation, sort of soft, soft softness of the images, the the general locations. Because I think that's important, that, um, and that can also kind of bring us into the storyline as well. So in Dead Aim, there's only two locations really, albeit um, they do they do vary uh, across different levels. So you've got the wonderful Spencer Rain, which, uh, as the name implies, is named after everyone's favourite megalomaniac. Uh, it's his ship, but it's not part of the Paragus line. What, Raina Camponic? Raina Camponic, yes. Yes, uh, from the films, yeah. Michelle Rodriguez. Oh, no, I didn't realise the tie-ins were that deep. That's impressive. <laughs> uh, the Spencer Rain is not part of the uh, the Queens, the, the Parag- Paragus lines um, of, of ships. Um, but this is a privately owned cruise liner that sails around the world. And it's quite impressive, actually. It, it Obviously, it lacks a lot of the detail that you'd later see on the the Queen Dido and the Queen Semiramis and the Queen Zenobia and things like that. But it has something about it. And and this, this is something that when I was replaying in preparation for this podcast, it is oh, it's so hard to describe. It reminded me of the original Spencer Mansion. I'm not talking about the remake mansion, which is beautifully detailed. I'm talking about the original 1996 mansion. When you play that game, there is something eminently wrong with it. With, with 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 the mansion and that that's part of its charm that because it, it is a facade and this game it just reminds me of it. It, it you know and it's probably down to the 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 kind of reused assets if you like there's lots of corridors and the walls all have that kind of what you know just white half white paint half wall dodgy wallpaper which is very prevalent in uh, the original uh, Spencer mansion 
and you have weird corridors that go nowhere that are probably used as kind of lo- you know secret loading areas for the next bit. Something that Revelations would do with the the turny wheel things um, on the on the doors, but they, they probably use those corridors. You know, and we on the stream we look back and what is the point of this corridor? You know, there, there, this would not be appropriate on a normal cruise liner, and that's exactly how you feel when you're playing. You know, the the original game. Um, you know, in Resident Evil. You know, where's the bathrooms and all this? What's this corridor? Why? You know, why is there a random greenhouse here? Uh, you know, it it's all designed to make you feel that slightly bit uneasy and. I think the Spencer Rain is like that. Yes, it's got a lot of recognisable bits, and but it all seems a bit, you know, there's a bar there because there has to be, and and it is all shielding the cool bits in the in the basement area, which is the you know the the presentation room. What it's really there for? It, I don't know. It, I I don't know if I'm looking too much into it, possibly, but it it does have that allure of it's not quite right as a boat. I'm not sure if anyone else shared that shares that view. No, I, th- I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, I know uh, GT's unfortunately not able to um, uh, be with us tonight, but one of the things he always likes to compare it to is The Shining, which gives you a very... I can see where he's coming from, because you have these quite sort of strangely lit, well-lit corridors that go on for almost infinity, and, and they're often empty with just the sort of groaning and the creaking of the ship as your, you know, your only company. It, for for a survivor game creates it does create a very exceptional experience very unique to the rest of the series um until i guess revelations came along yeah for the, for the, certainly for the time it was it felt a bit fresh for resident evil i think boats have been overdone to a fault yeah. in the series since but certainly when dead aim came out the the setting of a boat it, it did give a sense of sort of claustrophobia and uh, but at the same time a that sort of strange false uneasiness that the original mansion gave where it looks kind of normal but it's almost a location that's frozen that feels like there should be more to it mm. and even the zombies go through it like kind of wind up toys like it, it's there's just something deeply unnatural about the normality of it if that makes any sense Batman, do you agree? Do you think it, or, or do you think it's just gameplay? <laughs> you know, limitations of the system. Oh, this is, you know, they designed to make it look like, you know, a boat. Or do you think there's a bit more thought about how they were going to make present it? Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. You're right. There is, you know, the geography is a bit. It, it never really stood out to me. You know, I, I can't say when I was playing through it, it took me out of the experience. You know, I just put it down to maybe little gameplay quirks. It, it is a budget title, so there was a lot of repeated textures, a lot of mirrored rooms, but. You know, I found the location fine overall. I, I particularly liked the um, sort of below deck areas. Once you use the valve handle and get down into sort of the, the depth, um, I thought the layout of the ship made sense for as far as I was concerned. Rob, what about you? Uh, it's a bit, it's a bit of both. I think for me, like the 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 bits of ship that are definitely a sort of thing you would see on sort of maybe a grand cruise liner. But then yeah, there are areas where which is like filling out the map and repeated textures, as John alluded to, and just things that don't really make a lot of sense. The layout wasn't as well thought out as perhaps other boats in the franchise history. But there are there are bits to that that obviously make sense, and there's maybe it's just the focus of gameplay and getting from point A to point B, and and the things that you need to to do and collect were focused more than the layout. And I guess if you're equating that to the original game, it maybe perhaps that feels similar in that respect that it's built around its puzzles and its 
points of keys and all that sort of stuff. Well, I think that's the impression that I got. As I said, whether it was intentional, I, I don't know. But it, it's something that I, I, I just got that impression. And I, as John said, I really like some of the, the, the areas as well. Like the, the, the kind of bedrooms are really cool. And it's just nice picking up files from, you know, you know, from like, the crewman about oh I've been on the I've been on the ship twenty days now and he's writing a letter to you know to his brother or something and then you know paranoia kind of sets in on a few oh you know I've heard some things going on it it, it was a bit of a callback to well, at least it is now to you know to to that kind of slow build up to chaos that was that was unfolding so I I did I did I did like I, I did like that and yes the the underground parts or the you know the below decks area is quite nice. Um, and, and leading to the kind of key focal point in terms of the storyline, at least, was this pr- the presentation room, because the whole point of the Spencer Rain was that Umbrella was moving its operations off land, offshore, and they were selling um, new BOWs to prospective clients on ships like the Spencer Rain. And you can go into the this kind of presentation room. Uh, that is exactly that. It's almost like a you know, there's rows of seats there, and then there's um, you know, a kind of placard where someone would stand up, and then there's like bio tubes behind them where they would show the latest stock um, to be sold to you know to to, to, to clients. And I, th- I I think that's a, one of the coolest rooms you know in in the series really because you never really see that side of Umbrella. I'm trying to think on the top of my head. We know they do this, and we know they sell them. You know, we see it with like you know to the sacred snakes in dark side chronicles we know they sell to the u.s government and and other shady corporations but this is the first time you've actually seen that illegal side of things in practice or at least close to as practice as you can get so i i appreciate i really appreciated that it was again you know that kind of unnerving what what's it hiding and you know that's the kind of bulk of what of where where the spencer rain is going and you know the the importance of it i just think there was a bit of a missed opportunity because uh, it does mention it in the in some of the files but also in like the man the playing manual of the game they don't emphasize enough from a storyline point of view the importance of the people on board the spencer rain because the the manuals and the you know the uh, and the files talk about oh famous celebrities are on board Umbrella executives are on board. Terrorists, you know, government officials from all over the world are on board because they're looking into the development of the TG virus, which was, you know, Umbrella must have put the put the memos out. This is we, we've got this. You're going to want this, and so everyone came on board on this secret ship, you know, to see what see what was going on, and then it'd be attacked. It would have been nice, and I think John, you'll probably probably agree with that, you know, because obviously you focus on the storyline a lot. How cataclysmic that could have been and if we'd had a few more files you know they could have linked it in with you know re2 the x files which talks about like the vice president um joel allen i think his name is or we could have christina henry could have been there you know perhaps a couple more name drops as to you know real you know big cheeses and equally re5 could have mentioned it as well you know something like that you know but it's a bit of a missed opportunity there. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It would have been nice to have a few more files written from the perspective of these high-end clients who were here to buy things. You know, It would have just, I think, raised the stakes a bit more. And like you said, a few name drops there that only sort of hardcore fans would probably recognise, but it still would be very nice. And it sort of goes back to my earlier point of the game feeling very empty and the lack of characters. I think it would have been nice just to have a few more NPCs running around, you know, a few survivors, just to sort of help sink in more the story they're trying to tell, because that's the problem, isn't it? It's 
a lot of Resident Evil games are talk uh, set in the aftermath of what's happened. You know, the, the mansion. We go there two months after the original Biohazard. Raccoon City were there a week after things kicked off, and it's it's a similar situation here. But the environmental storytelling is so strong in those numbered titles that you can really imagine what's gone on. And Dead Aim, like you say, it's it's a bit harder to put that together because a lot of the environments are so empty. The presentation room is probably the strongest piece of environmental storytelling in the game, I think. That and the cutscene of Bruce walking through the deserted island later on. But yeah, just a few more files written from the perspective of these clients and maybe just an NPC or, you know, you come across a Marvin-type character who's dying in the corner who could tell you a bit more about what's gone on. That sort of thing, I think, would have just helped solidify the story a bit better. It, I mean, it is worth pointing out that they actually there is no written mention in the game that this is an auction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't even know where that officially comes from as such. It's just more hypothetical linking toward other things at the time, isn't it? You know, other supplement material that, in, you know, that mentions that, you know, these auctions are done on ships and things. And Yeah, I think a couple of the files mention that, you know, things like the TG virus variant and the tyrant have been modified for presentation. And obviously in the presentation room, you can see like BOW storage pods and things. Mm. So again, the environmental storytelling there works to uh, its advantage. But yeah, you're, you're right; it could have been elaborated on a bit better. I'm just pleased to say that this uh, game clearly, clearly inspired uh, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom uh, final act. Yeah, I mean that that is a horrible film, but it's a it's a guilty pleasure of mine. And every time I watch that auction scene, it does remind me of Dead Aim every single time. But that, that, that absolutely that is the kind of that's what we're dealing with, and and that's been alluded to throughout the series. What's the point of the T virus? What's the point of you know? Because that with RE five, we know that the T virus wasn't even Spencer's goal. He didn't really give too much of a hoot about it. It was more to do with him trying to you know for, fulfill his you know his godlike persona and find a virus that where he will rule over. He needed the T virus to you know bring in the big bucks. You know, like, okay, fine, fine. And then you know they made umbrella to sell you know other pharmaceuticals to you know to keep it all legitimate. Well, who's he selling into? Who's buying all this shit? <laughs> who, who wants a liquor? <laughs> who wants a hunter? Well, you know, and, you know, and the game's kind of built up, up to it, and, but there's not many examples of where we actually see that happening. And, and so I, I found it quite, quite, quite useful. But I, I, yeah, I, I do think it was a slight missed opportunity to have a bit more detail. And you're right, you are right, John, that, that there's only three characters in the game. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's quite poor. I mean, Survivor 1 had more. <laughs> yeah, and it's you could say the same about Resident Evil Zero. I think one of the faults in that game is it's it's obviously Bravo team are kicked to one side, but once you sort of get into the meat of the storyline with Rebecca and Billy, there's no one else involved at all, apart from that one instance where you run, up, you run into Enrico, where, given the geography cock-up, you'd rather not run into him. <laughs> yes. You know, imagine if... if there was just one extra file in the game, which was like, I don't know, a client list or a price list where we could see who was bid in for what. You know, how much is a hunter worth? How much is a pack of liquors worth? What companies, what countries are bid in for the T-virus? You know, that sort of thing would have massively raised the stakes and really expanded the, the danger, really, of the universe and, and just made everything much bigger. I think, yeah, that was a missed opportunity. What about you, Rob? The location of Spencer, you know, the Spencer Rain itself. Any particular highlights for you, based on what you know we, we we've been saying? 
I mean, and this is the thing, I think, when I remember playing through it, it was that I just accepted it was, like, some sort of luxury cruise liner, and, like, the 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 lore stuff kind of just, at the time, I don't know if it was my interest, but it kind of just started to, I didn't pay as much attention to it as I perhaps normally had, and I think it was, at the time, it was a lull in my interest, because I was like my life was in a weird, rapidly changing state for a couple of years between kind of oh three and oh five, and it it took a while to kind of get settled down. So it was one of those cases that it wasn't until later when I went back and replayed it, and and even now I'm just like I just remember more of it as an excuse me as an encompassing whole of a location rather than 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 anything specific. And even watching the replay last week, I I remembered I remembered each bit, but I don't remember anything specific that kind of leaped out at me the same way as it has for you guys you've all made you know yeah relatively good points but it's like yeah i think um, i think nothing. i think new players will play on it. i i i think what what we've said is, is probably accurate you know there is a lot of reused textures and as i said I, I i could be stretching a little bit but that was a genuine impression i had at the time about i thought this is quite similar to the spencer mansion that type of thing you know and I, perhaps it wasn't intentional who knows and it probably doesn't help that the Queen Zenobia is, you know, is 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 a beautiful ship, and you know the the graphical fidelity of that is so much better, and you know, and the the, the rooms vary quite significantly, um, you know, kind of the kind of back rooms and all the chef catering areas, and then you've got the grandiose rooms with all the kind of fog at the bottom, then you've got the swimming pool areas, and then the casino. It's all very, you know, lots, lots of different levels, and it all looks stunning the only variant really on the spencer rain between the lower grounds and the top and you've got the the kind of seven seas bar um which is you know the kind of pub you know the kind of pub slash casino area that that's probably you know and even that has that kind of soft grainy look to it it all kind of i mean it works within the game but i think if you've played revelations and then play dead aim you'll be a bit like oh this is a bit dull yeah i would say so but i don't think the spencer rain is too bad i mean you know we've obviously got to remember the limitations of of the time with it being a budget title i mean from what i can recall there's still recognizable first second and third class passenger sections there's the seven yeah. seas bar as you've mentioned there's the grand ballroom mm. there's the atrium sort of spire thing that runs down the heart of the ship where bruce loses his radio there's the promenade decks so you know there's there's nothing in there that makes it too unbelievable per se and no, no. And like you said, the the bottom areas of the ship are much more interesting. I think the sort of maintenance areas and the crew berths and things like that. One of the things that um, I just want to quickly touch upon, we mentioned it in the stream as well, to do with the Spencer Rain, is this is one of the only times in the series, possibly the only time in the series, where a thought has been given to you know the actual animated zombies still holding a semblance of themselves, which is something obviously Romero covers quite a bit with his commentary of consumerism and things, and obviously Edgar Wright riffed off that with Shaun of the Dead, but like you do get what you imply is to be a husband and wife at the, you know, on the end of the boat, still stood together even in their reanimated form. When you go into the Seven Seas bar at some point in the game, there's still zombies loitering around the, the, the bandits, and they're just sort of stood there aimlessly, mm. like the zombies of the Romero area when they're just sort of still shambling around the haunts that they used to do, as though there's still something in their brain that, you know, ties them to these things. Um, and I just, I just found it fascinating that, of all, you know, of all the games in the series that kind of does this, 
it's it's actually dead aim like so, some small amount of thought was given to like where we're going to place these zombies and it's, it's just something simple and, and, it, and it's there yes the, the jack rose zombies at the end yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you sneak up on them and put them out of their misery but it's um yeah because they, they do loiter around the in, in the in the bar don't they with the um they're all just the machines. Bandit, yeah. yeah, yeah, the machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's quite cool. So let's have a quick overview then of the general storyline that's going on. So this ties in before we get onto the big island. So we'll kind of well, let's focus on it on, on the Spencer Rain. So the, the auction's going on, and then Morpheus and his band of followers, who we don't know what who they are or what they look like, they attack the Spencer Rain as a revenge for his firing by Umbrella because um, he was blamed randomly for the mansion incident, which you find out a bit later on. And he's stolen some T-virus samples from the Paris lab, which is a nice little link to um, RE3. Because um, I do I do think in, in the opening video, it does say the sixth laboratory somewhere. I think it does. I'm sure there was some promotional art that said sixth laboratory as it's going up. So which is obviously where the nemesis parasite was created. So he, he, he and his band of followers attack the Spencer Rain, they release the T virus, or at least part of the T virus, onto the Spencer Rain, infecting everyone, killing huge swathes of umbrella, celebrities and God knows what. And then Morpheus commodores the ship and takes it towards um his island. That's the kind of that that bit's quite simple. Um, it's only when you get to the island you start questioning not necessarily the you know the storyline you follow it. Bruce and Fong Ling are sent in to you know stop Morpheus because Morpheus is threatening um, the world cities with T virus. And it's only when you get to the island you start questioning why did he take out the Spencer Rain because it's not entirely clear why he did this because on the island we learn through and we'll talk about the island as a location in a bit. We we. We learn through files that he has been using this island for many, many years and has been and he commissioned the building um, of the biosphere or at least the completion of the biosphere, because I think it was started probably under under Umbrella's watch. Yes, no, it was. Sorry. Yes, the, the biosphere was completed, but he adapted it with the missile silos secretly. Um, so Umbrella didn't know. So you do question why he needed the T virus when he probably had quite a lot of it already on the on the island because we know from the files that we've got Pluto running around since 1996. We know that we've got the Nautilus and the Torpedo Kids. They've been in the uh, in the waterways for quite some time. We know the Hunter Glimmers have been in there for a while. So this was a disposal island. And they had their own labs. And you, you see and explore the labs, which are quite cool little labs, I have to say. It was quite, you know, quite a nice little area. They've clearly got facilities. And there have been absolutely no reason why they wouldn't have the T-Virus. So it does seem odd that he needed to steal it from the, uh, from the Paris labs. Batman, can you elaborate any further, or or is it a bit of a plot hole? I mean, you could probably maybe just argue that he did it as a statement of of intent, so you know, Umbrella would perhaps take him seriously. I think he took the ship because he wanted to get hold of the new virus, and obviously he saw the opportunity to really damage Umbrella by wiping out a lot of their. Uh, top executives and customers in one foul swoop. Like you say, the T-virus was always at the island, so robbing the Paris lab I don't think was a necessity, but maybe he just did it out of arrogance, overconfidence. Unfortunately, it's not really stated. If anything, all it really does is alert the uh, Americans and Chinese as to what he's up to. I mean, you're, you're right about the island. It's it's like an old waste disposal facility where BO, failed BOWs can sort of roam loose um, and they're monitored by like a skeleton staff. The Biosphere Laboratory was sort of shut down by Umbrella 
We don't know when, but it says in a file that it was a long time ago, a long time prior to the events of the game. The island was run by Morpheus in the mid-90s, who, as we know, is an eccentric individual obsessed with cleanliness and beauty. The Pluto experiment is a big failure. It escapes, it kills five researchers, it triggers a biohazard in 1996. A year later, a new worker is transferred to the island and is amazed about how sloppily the facility is run by Morpheus. The biohazard conditions are still there, Pluto still hasn't been captured, a lot of employees have died, and it's evident that Morpheus has absolutely no regard for the people working under him. And it's these incidents that result in Umbrella wanting to get rid of him. You know, you've got to bear in mind that this biohazard, you know, precedes the mansion biohazard and things like that. So it's it's quite a big deal for the time. And Umbrella eventually make him a scapegoat for the Arkley Mansion biohazard as an excuse to get rid of him. And obviously Morpheus is quite rightly pissed off about this and swears revenge. And then in the early 2000s, he establishes a cult of followers. Again, Nick, you're right. We don't know who these people are unless they're just sympathisers to his cause or other embittered uh, ex-Umbrella employees. He plans to create his own kingdom in the heart of Africa. He wants to acquire the T-Virus and buy himself an army of mercenaries to overthrow local governments and work behind the scenes as like an international fixer, kind of similar to what Wesker wanted to do actually in later years. You know, Wesker wanted to control the flow of global warfare by being in possession of not only the deadliest bioweapons but also their you know the antivirus as well and the various cures but that's another discussion but morpheus essentially wanted the t-virus to make his new little kingdom the equivalent of a nation possessing mass destruction weapons and he chose africa because the progenitor virus source is located there or so that's what we all like to think again it's Probably nothing more than a coincidence. But at some point he returns to the now ab abandoned island with his followers, bringing in workers and architects and sets up base in the abandoned biosphere and starts to convert it into a missile launching bay. By 2002, Umbrella are obviously, or Spencer I should say, is planning Umbrella's revival by using the Spencer Rain to showcase new products for sale, as you've already gone into. This includes the TG Virus, a new Hunter and a new Tyrant. And, and yeah, that's basically Umbrella hopes, you know, this auction will be a success, generate some much needed income to pay for the ongoing legal costs of the raccoon trials, keep the corporation afloat following the various lawsuits and business suspension orders. You know, Morpheus plans to ruin all this by stealing the new virus, killing Umbrella's um, executives and obviously then launching missiles from his newly converted biosphere to major population centres across the US and China and if his financial demands are not met. I think he asks for $5 billion, does he, from each, comp uh, each country? And it's this money that he'll use to fund his new endeavour in Africa. And what I quite like, actually, is, is because the missile silo is located underwater, it makes it very hard to attack. You know, should any government's military try and retaliate, you'd have to say it would be extremely difficult to guide any warheads to a seabed target and therefore the US and China set, decide to send in infiltration agents instead and that sort of sets up the base game um, and then the whole Spencer Rain storyline which you've already gone into so there is quite a lot of stuff going on in the background you know there's other things going on as well Morpheus has a sex change or plastic surgery to retain his youthful looks he has his followers conduct survey reports on the various creatures that are still on the island so 
you know, there's other things going on. And then there's a second biohazard on the island, which according to the official scenario in Japanese only happens one month prior to the start of the game. And again, which was caused because Morpheus was just generally sloppy and didn't really care about the people working under him. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot going on. As always, John, that was uh, that was fascinating, <laughs> fascinating, and a, a wonderful listen. And that last point you make is quite important because, oh my days, the discussions, the discussions that I had back 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 in the day. Why are there zombies on this island? And you think, well, it's, it's a Resident Evil game, of course there's zombies. But actually, think about it. When you look at the, these files, everything is kind of implied as being a quite a long time ago. And it's not only that there are zombies on their island; these are zombies on fire. And another moment I will add, when I said peak gameplay, when I saw zombies on fire in Dead Aim for the first time, I was, I, again, I was blown away. <laughs> I didn't play a lot of games. I just played Resident Evil games. So I was like, wow, look at this. I thought it was incredible. So, yes, there were many, many discussions between myself, former um, uh, former kind of colleague used to work with us, El Bastardo. We came up with all sorts of theories about who these flaming naked zombies were. And um, the fact that, as I said, in the Japanese guide um, or the Japanese website says that there was that bi- another kind of, kind of outbreak, all of his followers. But does that tally up with the files? Because he... In some of the files, he says, I've arrived. Who, who's he talking to? He says, I've, I've arrived on the base. I'll now commence the plan. He, he puts it in a note to people. Yeah, he's talking to his followers um, back on the island. I think I mentioned this when Sean did his stream. In the, in the English version, it's not clear. It just says, I have arrived and begun the plan. But in the Japanese, it clarifies that he's arrived on board the ship and begun his plan, which is spreading the virus. And he's basically checking in with his employees still on the biosphere. And obviously, they're busy with the missile preparations, that sort of thing. But then doesn't that, what about the, if you said that all the, I thought all the zombie people were killed a month before then? On the yeah, the the sort of second biohazard that hits the island is like a month before the game, and that affects all the um, the workers on the island doing the the sort of um, BOW survey reports and things oh, okay. you can read. But not um, the not the people in the biosphere. I think the biosphere was kind of sealed off. But then I think Morpheus must somehow betray them as well, possibly a bit like Morgan Lansdale did when he sort mm. of re- released the biohazard remotely on the ship. Um, but again, it's it's not really stated, unfortunately. Before we get into the location, I think what's important is you follow the chronology of Resident Evil. What happens after this is Umbrella's End, because this is what September 2002, Dead Aim happens. And then the next chronological event is Umbrella's End from the Chronicles from the Chronicles games, which basically sees all of Umbrella kind of like being forced together, and you know everything lies on the Russian facility and Sergei's little base of operations. That's it. So there is there's the argument, and we'll come to it a bit later on as to whether you know, the importance of the Spencer Rain incident and the destruction of everyone and umbrellas failed kind of mini you know, mini revival but as, as i said john you know your your, your takes very eloquent and just it kind of gives the impression of how important it is i just wonder whether as a, when you're playing it you don't necessarily feel that is the case no you don't i don't that's the problem with this game you don't really it's not really explained just how high the stakes are really you know when the ship goes down and you start walking through the island you don't suddenly think well that's effectively the end of umbrella there because surely that that's just killed off all the all the mm. new, new products, all their clients, all their top executives. You know, that, that doesn't really stick in your head because it's not really properly spelled out to you, which which is a shame, really, because I think it is all a bit of a happy coincidence, but it is a big deal because you would, 
you have to wonder if dead aim was never a thing and the Spencer Rain incident never happened, would Umbrella have gone down as quickly as they eventually did? Because the, the Talos project and Sir Guy was like the last throw of the, device, uh, throw of the d- dice and once they were dealt with, Umbrella very quickly went under then. But would that really have happened if they still had all their clients, you know, their top customers still living and their top executives still alive? You'd probably argue that they they would have survived a little bit longer and therefore Umbrella itself might have survived a little bit longer, but we just don't know. And another problem with Dead Aim as well is it's never referenced in any other game. It's never referenced really in any other piece of supplemental material. So, you know, it's very easy for the events of this game to just sort of be quietly swept under the rug and forgotten about. Rob, do you think that's a bit... Yeah, big shame. How How important do you guys think the, the, the overall game is from a storyline point of view or essentially i don't want to say you know i, I think it's important are we overhyping it a little bit <laughs> is, is it needed do you need to play it, 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 it from, from a law point of view but it, it, yeah yeah what do you think uh, no, then no it has no overarching impact on the rest of the series it, it is at best a a neat little filler for the missing years because if you play yeah. a chronological playthrough, then obviously the last entry you have. Uh, oh God! Even even if you're doing a numbered title play, number a numbered title playthrough, you go from RE3, which is set in 1998, and then you jump six years. So Dead Aim is one of those games that fills that gap, if you like. Mm-hmm. You, you um, missed Code Veronica. Yeah, I'm just numbered titles. I'm 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 being uh, being deliberately obnoxious here. Not Rob, just with actual number titles as opposed yeah. to because because yeah. there are some people who claim that you know CVX is a spin-off because it doesn't have a number. Um, so no, that's that's on, that's just that's just circumstances of branding at time. That yeah, three wasn't yeah. even supposed to be three and all that sort of stuff. I yeah. think you know anyone who's making that argument still this day and age needs to stop even including code veronica you're still talking 1998 jump to 2004 Mm. so this is still a game that can fill a gap in those years and there are that that sort of six year period is still one of the least explored parts of the resident evil timeline Mm. for some baffling reason and i don't understand why because surely it holds the most scope for some exciting storytelling in the final days of Umbrella. But if you read, you know, if you read the various discussions on Discord and forums about, you know, what led to Umbrella's downfall and the dissolution of Umbrella, it's very rare that people mention the events of Dead Aim as a contributing factor. Hmm. But yeah. how dif- how different would things be if the game was exactly the same, the content was exactly the same, the only change was you swap Bruce and Fong Ling for Leon and Ada. How then <laughs> Would the game suddenly jump up in importance for a lot of people? Some people would be saying it's the real RE4 because it deals with Umbrella. It's got zombies in, and yeah, mm. it didn't make our list in episode sixty-seven of essential titles to play in preparation of Village. Because it's again, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> a travesty and travesty. But well, should it's it? Not, it's, it's not. It's not. Like I, I'm going to answer now because 
I was going to do before, but it's it's not because the the only reason you can li- lie a line between this and say the Umbrella's End is because Umbrella's End came out afterwards, and they mm. needed to tell that story. If that didn't exist, this would just be an interesting offshoot that explains a little bit more of Umbrella's downfall, but didn't give an, didn't really give you an answer either way. So it's not really that important either. That's only when you start trying to piece all the bits together, and then even then, it's just another event. Like yeah. there could have been several of these events and that all contribute the same factors it's 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 standalone it's people know how much i love this game and even i'm you know i i will concede it is at best in the what in terms of the wider law a footnote that that's all it is it's just a single entry in a timeline it's wesker's extra report you know where he talks about chips that's a good point just to bring up on what batman says it has never been mentioned in any game bruce does not get a mention in anything and wesker's extra report which came with umbrella chronicles it meant yeah as as sean says it mentions that post raccoon city umbrella took some of their activities offshore yeah using ships Uh, and there you go and everyone's like that's it that's a dead aim reference because it's a survivor title there's always been is it canon debate about it. That's existed when as soon as Survivor One came out. Well, this isn't canon. It's not Resident Evil Four or whatever it needed to be at that time. But yeah, Gate uh, Survivor's been mentioned far more times than um, you know Dead Aim. Um, and Wesker's extra report is is tenuous at best. But I think it has it did get mentioned in Dark Side Chronicles. though, didn't it? in the Inside of Dark Side Chronicles book, which is, mentions quite a lot of things as an important. as a title as a canonical title yeah i mean there's a multitude of timelines that capcom have published in various books and other materials and and that particular one is the only time the events of dead aim are referenced which is interesting because obviously sheena island biohazard that got a major shout out in resident evil zero and it's been mentioned in a few other things like archives etc but the spencer rain incident has been um yeah completely overlooked i think one tenuous link we all made at the time when the game was brand new was this because it's not again it's not mentioned in game is it i think it's mentioned on the back cover of the box um that bruce works for us stratcom anti uh, sorry anti-umbrella pursuit and investigation team and I think we all said, oh, this is the uh, underground umbrella organisation that um, is mentioned in Wesker's report. It's the organisation that Leon and Barry work for. Mm. And, you know, people have made the link as well that Bruce Bruce's equipment is pretty much one-to-one for the, the stuff Leon has in Resident Evil 4 as well. So I remember a, a lot of discussion about that at the time when the game was new. I've always been interested about that design choice because some people might say it's, oh, it's reusing whatever, but it's not a reused texture. It's, a, it's, a, it's an original texture that just happens to look pretty much the same sort of outfit that they were going for at the same time planning or later planning that version of 4. So it's a very interesting choice and there must be some reasoning behind it. You've touched on it as well earlier, just the the mention of Africa. And again, you know, distinct memories of all roads lead to Africa at this time at this time of the uh, of the timeline everyone was we just had zero come out and we'd had those billy cohen flashbacks in africa we had dead aim go talking about the symbol of beauty or whatnot symbol of power is in africa and then we had re4 come out and then i think there was we had talk about re5 and that was going to be set in africa and it was like oh you know, this this is where this is where the game you know this is where the series is heading dead aim's going to be you know front and center of re5 you know 
This this is what we talk about, that's, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's but the the thing is, Nick, that's not how they play in these games. No, no, they it's not. They just make them as they go, and so it just so happened that there was two games that happened to make references to Africa, and the, they decided on a setting for five, and it just happened to be Africa. It's it it's why it doesn't connect the ways you expect it to, yes. because it wasn't wasn't thought of those ways. It was just a decision that was made. But that they didn't went with, stop a, us with a light and dark. Well, exactly. But they went, they went with a light and dark concept and thought Africa seemed like a good place for it. That's... And let's not forget the obvious fact that the, the, the Billy Cohen flashbacks in Zero had nothing to do with Biohazard. <laughs> it, was, it was purely an army coup of some description, wasn't it? Um, you know, him yeah. disobeying orders. So it had absolute, But as I said, that didn't stop Zero. us. Zero, zero thing to do with Umbrella. Yeah. I think if we'd known in 2003 the progenitor virus was in Africa, we would have been all over this. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, But then it was... Ret- retroactively, it works beautifully, though. Yeah, mm. it does. It does. As we talked about in the stream, you know, the symbol of power being in Africa, and now we know that the, the you know, the garden is there. It's It's beautiful. It's, it's a perfect it's one of those rare moments in the series where a retcon actually works and you go I know it wasn't intended at the time in 2003 yeah. but my god it's good isn't it it's a purely accidental retcon yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay well we, we talked about it but I want to go back to it the the island location which I uh, lovely lovelyly named Benthic Island simply because of the Benthic Labs seabed labs seabed island sounds rubbish so I, I called it Benthic Island and so I've called it on the website because it's our website i can name it what i like so um benthic island is a (laughs) lovely little location it's just a shame and it's all underground and we don't see it but for fleeting seconds a fleeting 30 second uh cut scene where bruce is scaling the rocks chris redfield style and then looking through this village of despair almost and the music and the sea, and you're like, this looks like one of the best locations in the world. I can't wait to it. Oh no, we're going down the lift. <laughs> Here's some grey tunnels for you. Here's some grey tunnels. <laughs> and this, yay! <laughs> I must say that, that, and I probably talked about it on the my first ever episode of this. But that cut scene of Bruce just briefly walking through the abandoned buildings is one of my personal highlights of the series. I think so for that good. that sort of sixty seconds, I am in absolute bliss. I I just think it's phenomenal. I think that you know that direction wise, it's amazing. The music is incredible, and it's a feeling that you know, as you say, Nick, you you want to it, you want to play it, and then you just shove down into the sewers. And it's not until actually Resident Evil Revelations two that you get some idea of what exploring abandoned locations would be like. In that in that kind of context, and this will not be the last time Revelations Two comes up tonight. No, and I, I think I think you're spot on. Um, as that you get this kind of weird, almost like a quasi-American town that's been. You've got the big water tower with the with with the Paul Anderson-esque <laughs> umbrella logo, right? You know, heart heart and center of 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 the water tower, but it, it it's, it's dilapidated. It's fallen to ruin. And you go, ooh, what's going on there? You know, was this was this the facade? Um, you know, this is what we this is what we want to explore. This is what we want, and, the, and it's just taken away from you. But then, as you say, Revelations two, you get the the abandoned fishing town at the beginning. Oh, that's quite weird. And then, but later in the game with Barry, you get that entire town 
And absolutely, it invokes that same imagery of. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I, I love that part in Revelations too. I thought it was fantastic, and uh, you know, it is certainly perhaps again another coincidental callback, perhaps. But um, it is a shame that we don't get to explore Benthic Island uh, overground more. <laughs> Dull and boring, and very depressing. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 problem is with the sewers and the the subsequent. I don't even know what you want to call it. it it's like an expanded sewer section before you get to the Pluto fight, but they're all just basically copy paste locations that exist to pad the game. Which I say, you know, almost ironically, because the game itself is barely an hour long experience. But this is the point in the game where you can clearly see the budget restrictions kick in because you just have endless sewer tunnels. Endless. I don't even. I, like I say, I don't even know what to call it. Where all the, like the flaming zombies are and the glimmer monsters are. I don't even know what you'd call that. It's just an extension of the sewer system. But what what you have is for a good sort of ten fifteen minute duration, endless corridors that look the same, and it and it and it reeks of that era as well. PS two games mm. were notorious for doing this. You could see some budget restrictions, and although all all a developer would do is just force you into many many scenes of similar looking environments just to prolong or pad the runtime yeah running around in the dark with the uh, with the glimmers where you could only see their eyes was quite novel mm. and um, and i think the sound design helped in a lot of these areas as well like i i never noticed it until your stream a couple of weeks ago but the the sounds the torpedo kids make when they're sort of like wailing or or crying for the yeah that was really creepy i can't believe i've never noticed that before you know what it bizarrely reminds me of it reminds me of the sounds you hear through the bradbury building in blade runner yeah. When he, when uh when Decker's walking through it, he hears these sort of almost strange sounds in the background. So there you go. It's not only invoked the shining, it's invoked Blade Runner now. That's a link I wasn't ex I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I don't think anyone was. Yes, no, I I'd never heard that as well. I mean I I asked Sean to stop. What's that noise? It sounded like a child was screaming. Meow. And you were like, oh, it's the torpedo kids. Is it? That was, uh, yeah, quite, quite weird, quite weird. Okay, that, that, that brings us quite nicely then to talk about the BOWs generally in this game. And this, I think the Spencer Rain kind of lacks a little bit of variety because you only get the hunters and the zombies and then a, one tyrant. There could have been, could have been a few more, I think. As I, I think I said it in a previous one. Where, where are the zombie seagulls, ladies and gentlemen? That would have been an, an, an ideal time to introduce zombie seagulls. It, it gets a little bit better on the island, but do you think the Spencer Rain's lacking a little bit of variety? I think so, especially because of the the plot of the game and the files make a, a conscious effort, don't they, to explain that biohazardous cargo is being secretly transported onto the ship so you would have thought they could have put a couple of original BOWs in there. Can't say I've got much time for the Hunter Elites, to be honest. Again, I think they just dumbed down what made the original creature so scary and so dangerous. You know, yet another Hunter variant, um, which I just don't think we really needed. And it's interesting as well because Dark Side Chronicles introduced the Anubis in the same chronological year, 2002. 
and that made a point of saying the Hunter program had essentially been scrapped by that point because the rival company had got hold of the development data and sabotaged it. So you'd have to say the Hunter Elite was probably the very last model put into production before it was stopped. Just a bit flat for me, these Hunters, and disappointing we didn't get a couple of completely original creatures. Yeah, and I think this is where Revelations is quite good in that, you know, there's lots of naturally occurring BOWs on the Zenobia, isn't there? Some like the wall blisters are just, you know, mutated barnacles and things like that, aren't they? Which potentially we could we could have seen that happen. You know, the T virus is pretty infectious to most things. So yeah. Any you know, any rat or anything on board, we could have seen something quite quite weird. I don't know, I, I like I like the hunter because I, I think this one is particularly good. I like the fact that it's huge. I like the fact that it takes a huge amount of um, ammunition to actually take down as well. This ain't no silly revelations hunter, which is just a joke. These are powerful beings, and they've got they're, they're as deadly as the alphas. They've got the kind of twitch movements of the beaters as well. Mm. So I just thought it's like, oh, you know, I, I could see, and they've got the kind of like frog-like appearance, almost of the gammas. And I, I, I think they put a little bit of thought into that. It's, it's no coincidence that it's got the beta twitch, yeah, um, and that kind of thing. So um, I don't know. I like them. I think I think they're good. I think um, I, I don't. I don't think the animation's been lifted or anything like that. But it, there is notable similarities when you play um, Resident Evil Three Remake. That the dodge move that the um, betas do in that game is incredibly similar to the Hunter Elite and their death animation where they kind of stretch their body to full length and rise is nearly exactly the same. It's it's almost uncanny how similar it is. And I, I, I genuinely, I'm going to say this, I genuinely don't think it's a reference or anything like that, but it's just quirky and interesting how it manages to be the same in its own way. Like I say, I don't think it, I don't think it's a link or anything like that, but it's just very humorous to me that two two incredibly separate teams have hit upon something that looks very similar. And if it is a reference, then I take my hat off to the RE3R developers in one of my only times I will ever do that. Rob, anything? Well, let's let's broaden the scope then about just the general BOWs, um, you know, on the island as well, because obviously that you know they get a bit more creative because it's supposed to be disposed disposed creatures. Anything that you that tickled your fancy? Were you a fan of the uh, of the Pluto? The Pluto to me, it's funny, reminded me a lot of, and like literally, I think it was the year before the same year. Now I'm trying to remember when it was. Maybe it was the year before. It was when Silent Hill Three came out, and they had the like the big bloater style enemy in it, and they look very similar. And I remember going, "Gosh, this is very Silent Hill-ish at this point." I can't remember what the name of that enemy is. I've gone blank, but yeah, it was very similar. And they, they, it was just the the fact that it was like similar movement, except the Resident Evil one moved faster. That was literally the the difference. And they both were relatively uh, sight impaired. They were more sound focused. I remember thinking there were some very big similarities between those two, and I don't know if that was intentional or it was just circumstantial. But no, I mean, yeah, it was. You're right. There's more variety, but the game overall is you probably have to admit is also generally probably lacking the most variety overall for one of these games and as you've pointed out during the stream and, and alluded to a little bit before it's just like why, why are all these zombies on fire <laughs> like it's a bit weird if you look at most re games the actual you know, the, the originals the variety of bow's is pretty slim pickings it's only when you get to re4 onwards 
you know, people now expect there to be, you know, 12 versions of the of the Ganado. Yeah. Or you know, this is one of the I last games, you know, there's only, you know, what was it, eight, eight or nine, which is about normal. Yeah. I, I, I feel like some of the early games maybe had like about a dozen, including all the small varieties. It, I think it's that same thing. Like you said, like, oh, well, you could have done zombie seagulls, you know, <laughs> like that's, you know, instead of crows, that is quite plausible. Like there are things you probably could have added that were those little ones that you would get in the earlier games that perhaps are missing. Mm. Um, and I think maybe it is that it's just weighted so heavily that there's not a lot of variety for like the first half or so. Realistically, like the first sixty percent of the game, because I think the ship really takes up sixty percent of the game. To be fair, there's no, always... other than that, nothing. Yeah, nothing really stands out. And then like, I'm not even going to skip forward to what you're eventually going to get to because you'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to talk about that. Well, I always found the the Nautilus and Torpedo Kids to be a, an early example of gameplay bosses. This is something that I, I, I feel has littered the series for a while, where they, they, they'll put a boss just to showcase a bit of gameplay. I'm looking at the Nemesis in Remake 3. Um, I'm looking at Ndesu, RE5. Um, I mean, they've always had some of those elements in places. It's not... I don't think it's fair to say it's... I mean, perhaps it got worse, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, enemies that are specific to an environment because they went, let's have this environment and then designed an enemy around it. Yes. Or created an extension of the enemy for its ability to exist further into something because of the gameplay element. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. I feel like that has something that perhaps has always somewhat existed, but only became more and more apparent as the franchise went on. Mm-hmm. As they tried to come up with more variety of enemies and more interesting ways to be creative with it, because obviously the mindset is that zombies can only go so far and yeah, certain yeah. enemies can only go so far. I mean, you could make the same argument about your your namesake. You know? <laughs> we'll chuck a yeah, yeah, yeah we'll chuck a, um, an aqua ring down there. Well, I'll chuck a shark. Well, not you know. Well, yeah. I've got a shark, and exactly. So you know, it's not. I don't think it's something that's new. I think it's just something that became more obvious. Yes, no, I'd agree hundred percent that. Pluto, of course, as you've mentioned, has the benefit of one of the best files in the entire series. One of the most horrific files of this poor, poor criminal, which, you know, we've, we've a lot of history of the Umbrella taking condemned criminals, uh, which Survivor showcased very nicely. And then performing what can only be described as one of the most horrendous procedures any kid could uh, go under, you know, removing eyeballs... Opening up the bread. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, well, well worth checking out. But what uh, what I found interesting was that it there wasn't anything particularly remarkable. Remarkable. We don't think about the actual person that was was Pluto, the human that was Pluto. But adding something like muscular boosters had a, a huge impact upon the the mutation that the T virus followed. Which we, apart from a tyrant. Um, you know, a kind of naturally born tyrant, should you say? You you never really see that again in, with the T virus. You know, no one, you know, adding almost like artificial means to a human base to see what that would do. If you know what I mean, you know, there's no they don't give them any other enhancers or you know to just to see how that affects. And I always found that quite interesting because you the question is whether the tyrant um, the Pluto is a, is a, is a, is a tyrant, and you could say well it, it kind of is, but it, the best example is ironically from Resident Evil Six. The kind of whopper C virus variant is just a you know, and that's where you kind of see these variants kind of tricking you know, just like a, a a big human that's seen that been infected with the C virus, and that's kind of enhanced that kind of natural 
size of it whereas this is you know been done with by almost like by artificial means and it, it's something that, that you never you never really see in the series at least in the early days, which you, you would have thought, you know. Well, you make a, an interesting link there to the tyrants, and you talked about the muscle boosters and that. It's, it is actually a common factor for the tyrants. The tyrants are given, as well as the T-virus, they're all given muscle strengthening surgeries, which is where they get the bulk from. So oh, yeah. it's, it's possible that Pluto was maybe an attempt at a budget tyrant in um, much the same way the, uh, the Bandersnatch was on Rockfort Island. You yes, know? yeah, um, that's a good point. Yeah. And it just became a sort of mishmash of parts because they were trying to... It would make sense as well with the, with the timing of Umbrella wanting to sort of cut costs and things. So, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if it, if it turned out to be, you know, a, a kind of budget tyrant-type creature. Mm. Yeah, you could, people forget that the Bandersnatch was supposed to be like a miniaturized tyrant version, but didn't really didn't really take off. The most random, I, and it, it, I forget about it each time. And I think again, it came up on our stream. The, the, the wasp, Halbert, it's got to be the most random thing. It just suddenly, literally, just plonks in the ground. You know, you're just walking through a room, and suddenly this queen wasp just falls on your lap, basically. Like, oh, I'm fighting a giant insect now. I always found that to be really weird, and uh, the halberd is one of the examples of where that that's that was an actual BOW, and so I appreciated its appearance because at some point Umbrella somewhere has decided to experiment with a wasp, which we see obviously in the in the in the original game, and they made a specific BOW and said no, this is crap, and they sent it off to off to the labs, but it does it does feel a bit out of out of sync though. Do you ever think that? Yeah, definitely. It kind of felt like one of those things. Oh, we need we need some kind of sub boss here. So, mm. you know, what can we think of on the fly? It um, like the recycled the giant moth from Resident Evil Two. You know, we just need like an enlarged insect. It's lost the ability to fly because it's so big and so heavy now. So it's just kind of immobile, but it spits out like a lot of its young. And yeah, it just felt kind of really random and just a bit the- uninspired. The thing for me is that the the thing is um, the whole situation is more of a missed opportunity because if you look at this like what you're explaining like there's a whole bunch of these things where they rejected a whole bunch of stuff and sent them all to be disposed of they could have had all sorts of weird random mutations and all sorts yeah. of weird enemies but again it's the budget of the title is you know how many enemies and how much you can throw at it really but yeah there was a great opportunity there to potentially just do all sorts of weird stuff right. Let's talk TG virus and specifically the um, uh, Morpheus and the Tyrant T091. So this was, again, a really nice direct follow-up from Resident Evil 2. We basically find out what happened to the G-Virus after Hunk retrieved it from um, Birkin. Um, And and there's a very clear file about what the goal of this virus was to do. By combining the T-Virus with the G-Virus, they wanted to create an electrical property to it um, somehow so that when someone was infected... Um, they would be able to create their own electrical field, which would effectively make them immune from enemy firepower. The first regent was the TO91, well, the, the yeah, the TGO91 virus that was given to a human, and we see the TO91 tyrant, which was a bit of a failure. There's not a lot going on in that tyrant. Certainly, no electrical uh, properties, which is what is deemed a failure. And interestingly, though, does it, John? Correct me. Was it sent for disposal? Because it wasn't on show. It wasn't being presented, was it? I think the tyrant was supposed to be, but it was given the first version of the virus, the zero nine point one variant, and it 
it failed to generate the yeah. required electromagnetic field. So yeah, it was a failure in that respect. But I can only presume it was on the ship because they intended that particular specimen to go on auction. But obviously it didn't because it uh, it failed. I just wondered whether it was... No, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been on there to be go to, you know, not to the island for disposal. But I like that tyrant a lot. I'm a big fan of the T091 um, simply because it looks like a kind of cross between the proto tyrant from Resident Evil Zero, and it's kind of got that G virus element because it's got the claws, but you know, there's a kind of like tentacle side of things coming out, and you're like, oh, that's quite cool. And then it's horrendously gory when you fight it in on on the ship. Um, it's got the heart on its back. And that's the weak spot. You start shooting that shotgun at that tyrant. The blood, the gore is off the scale. Yeah, but, it's pretty cool. So that was a fa- that was as I said that was essentially a failure as a tyrant. And then they made the 092 variant or region or whatnot. And then so this is the the long term question a lot of people had because with the release of Umbrella Chronicles, you kind of got a bit of misinformation about uh, 13 clones being made for uh, the, the Tyrant program and whatnot and whatnot, and then the development of the T-virus as to who would become a Tyrant if injected with the virus. So who were, you know, and people saying, well, is the Tyrant 091 one of Sergei's clones? And I mean, this is all kind of retrospectively people you know, trying to pin some things. So the question is, why would anyone with a TO92 variant, would they always become a tyrant? Or was Morpheus one of these special people? But not necessarily the one in 10 million, uh, which is what is kind of cited in Wesker's report too, because I think acceptance of the T-virus was a lot higher at that point. But is Morpheus, would you still say, John, a special adapter? to the virus it's maybe a bit of both because i think the variant of t virus that was used to create the tg virus was you know the one originally developed by birkin through the use of sergei's clones that made it you know tyrant compatibility so much better so rather than you know just one in one in every 10 million becoming a tyrant the chances of morpheus becoming a tyrant would be probably something like maybe i don't know one in 50 or one in 100 because the compatibility rate was so much improved and that to me is a better explanation than morpheus just randomly being this this one in 10 million adapter no i agree yeah and it morpheus injects himself and then mutates into and i'm keen to hear your views on this john because i know you're not a fan of code veronica I would say almost like a semi-successor to Alexia, who's also very much a tyrant in that kind of mode. But Morpheus was the second B.O.W. that retained consciousness, awareness, speech. Not, I'm not counting the nemesis. Because, you, you know, it, it's a criticism of Code Veronica that, you know, it, it began that tread into a bit more science fantasy than perhaps the slightly grounded reality of the T-virus that was beforehand. What, how did you always take the, the TO-92 tyrant Morpheus being able to have that level of awareness as a monster? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really like it because it went against everything we'd known up to that point in terms of how tyrants worked and how they functioned. So it's something I kind of wish wasn't there. But as to an explanation as to why he can do it, I, I honestly don't really have an answer. They just wanted him to, to retain his consciousness and be able to still speak, a bit like the same with Sergei when he turns into a monster as well. And 
it, it just sort of, I, I think Dead Aim gave birth to this concept in respect, uh, in retrospect, with final bosses being able to sort of keep the sanity to some degree and still be able to communicate with you. Because I think we saw it again with Jack Norman in Revelations and you know things like that and it's it's not something i particularly enjoy but for an in-universe explanation as to why he can still talk to you and i don't really have one i'm afraid sorry <laughs> to disappoint co- and of course the organic high heels uh i don't think there's any explanation for that <laughs> rob what about you how, how do you take morpheus slash tyrant do you think it was a good addition to the lore or something that should have been forgotten? I feel like it is something that's been forgotten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and probably justifiably, I think it is pretty silly. And um, I think it's just one of those cases, you know, kind of alluding to is just circumstances of trying to create a, an interesting boss. I mean, it's not that the, the idea is not, yeah, yeah there's, you could have done something with it, but I don't think the outcome was the right choice. I don't know if there's much more I can say about it that you guys haven't already. Sean, what about you? It's, 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 it's a bit outlandish, but it's not anything that's personally bothered me on any kind of level. I mean, I know we've sort of made humorous remarks about the high heels and stuff like that, but even that, it it, it didn't bother me too much. I, I have no real sort of theory or anything about it. I just took it on face value. And with response to the fact that Morpheus can talk and retain the consciousness... I find it very interesting that in the timeline, you've got this set in 2002 and 2003, and John's mentioned um, Sergei, um, which is the 2003 thing. Resident Evil just seemed to hit this peak, didn't it? With um, monsters being able to speak and retain their consciousness. I don't think there's anything in it, really. All right. It is is just what it is, really, isn't it? It, Yeah, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) And I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean? He serves the purpose of being the the end boss. You've got the token weapon to take down the specific B.O.W., you know, successor to the linear launcher, the rocket launcher, whatever it needs to be, you've got all that. The thing I enjoyed the most about Morpheus was the fact that, that his mutation was on point with what we'd seen before with the G virus, whereas his, you know, his first form was just odd and it felt a bit gameplay. It's like, well, we're, we're going to make a tyrant and we're going to make him near immune. You won't be able to do anything to him till the end of the game. Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll make him electric for some reason. We like the albinoid in Kovonica. Let's, let's expand upon that. And, it, you know, they didn't have to do that. And that didn't seem very G-virus to me. And there's still no real explanation. We combined the T-virus with the G-virus and we made electricity. And it's like, okay. Didn't see that coming. And so that was always felt a bit off. But it's only when, you know, you actually do inflict a lot of damage to Morpheus. Then you see the G-virus kick in. And that's when I was like, okay, I get it. I get that. This, this works for me. And that, although the stupid whack-a-mole end boss is, is stupid, that G mutation is very much in line with Birkin G4, G5, and arguably even Curtis to an extent. That's how the G virus works. And I like that. And he, even, and you know, sometimes you can, you can miss this, even after you kill him at the end of the boss, that doesn't kill him. You know, Morpheus Form 3 gets as big as the bloody island. He's enormous, and the only thing that takes him out is his own missile silos, which is quite poetic. They go off. You don't stop them, and it's more... It, I don't think... It's Morpheus that saves the day, in the sense... You know, he becomes so big, his mass absorbs it all and kills him. Yeah, he basically absorbs all the missiles and the sort of detonate within his mass, don't they? And yeah. And that sort of subdues the damage they would cause. But yeah, I wasn't... I'm just not a big fan of 
form one. I, I don't see what the electricity element brought. I know that I, I and it's kind of as it's, it's hand waved a little bit in the files, and it? it's like, oh, we, we this is the goal to make electricity. Bit of a stretch. It's the least of your concerns when you're looking at what the Plagas does, in my opinion. I, I, I let it. I let it slide. Funny thing about the TG virus or the concept behind it as well was, believe it or not, remake two through a bit of a spanner in the works as to how it works. I mean, fancy that, the remake causing a problem with a, a prior game. Uh, no. Completely unheard of. But anyway, <laughs> the the TG, basically the fusion of the TG virus, it's not really explained very well, but obviously we know how dangerous and volatile and um, unpredictable the G virus is. And it's assumed that certain genes were swapped out and replaced with the less volatile counterparts from the T-virus. And in that sense, the T-virus acts as an antibody to the G-virus and helps keep it under control because that's how it's described in the Japanese version of the file. It describes the T-virus as an antibody to the G-virus. You know, it, it stops it from being as out of control as it is in its natural raw form. But if I'm remembering correctly, there is a file in Remake 2 where it's talking about the G-virus experiments in the orphanage. And one particular test subject is uh, someone who has a kind of natural resistance to the T-virus and they basically inject him with the G-virus to see what happens. And it basically doesn't do anything at all. It stops. Basically, the T-virus resistance does nothing to stop the mental deterioration of the G-virus. And that kind of goes against what Dead Aim is suggesting by fusing the T and G virus together because they're saying the T virus helps keep the G virus at bay somewhat. And Remake 2 has just tra tra trampled all over that and said, no, it doesn't make any difference at all. It's something the, the writers of Remake 2 will have never ever considered, but it's just one of those annoying little little things that I don't like. Well, okay, so that I, I think that's quite a quite an interesting discussion on the, on the TG virus. Um, one of the things that Dead Aim is universally praised for is its save room music. <laughs> I think a lot of people will know the save room music, but won't necessarily know you know where the game comes from. Let's talk about the the, the general soundtrack to Dead Aim. It's it's got a good soundtrack, isn't it? And phenomenal, yes. It has got. So I, I want to kind of end. You know, we. we We've kind of, you know, dissected a lot of the BOWs, what doesn't work, some of the storylines are a bit quirky, the control's not the best. So let's end on a, on a kind of general positivity here yeah. with, with the soundtrack. Why not? Why not? You you want some hyperbole? <laughs> <laughs> Save room music is the best in the series. There you go. It's great. It really is good. I mean, even, I mean, we can, you can talk about this, the kind of soundtrack and the general voice acting as well, if you kind of mix it in one. I mean, we, we I don't want to repeat too much, but I mean... Even after 20 years, the, 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 the hilarious voice acting and or mismatch to the, the subtitles is still one of amusement. When we're playing, it's like two different games going on at the same time. Very rarely do they actually mix, but never mind. Yeah, so this is one of the... It's got a very... I'd, I'd say almost like an 80s vibe going on. The music's all kind of like chilled and oh, I, 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 I wish I knew musical terms better but do you know what I mean you know the kind of opening track you know the kind of like holding music in the game it's all kind of like boop, 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 boop. you know it's all <laughs> do you know what I mean it's all kind of it's a bit Vice City like I think I, I don't know that's the you know kind of vibe that you're going for it's all kind of chilled and and then at the other end of the spectrum you've got Shot, shot, you know, gun right. It's all, it's all over the place. It, it suits the game so well. I think it is testament to how it works. You know, some of I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I'm I'm rabbiting now because I I do like it, but it, it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what what they're going for. But the vibe, the vibe, 
is is very on point. It's like the game itself. It's very minimalist because mm. apart from key cutscenes and boss battles, and obviously the introduction, is there a, is there any sort of ambient tracks that play throughout? You know, you get certain sounds in the mansion when the hunters come back, for example, you get that ominous soundtrack, but there doesn't seem to be anything like that in Dead Aim. You just get the sort of ticking over of the ship, you know, you can hear it creaking and groaning, which I think works well. Yep. But I can't think of any soundtracks or, or, you know, tracks off the top of my head that sort of play when you hit certain areas to sort of raise the, you know, the atmosphere at all. It's just sort of boss battle tracks and cutscene tracks from what I can remember. I think that they are certainly the standout. The encounters with Tyrant, and I, um, with 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 uh, Morpheus as well in that battle, and I really like that kind of. Oh, I'm gonna make, you're gonna make me do it. That kind of noise. That kind of <laughs> that you get um, when you know when he's close by and he. And he I don't know, I can't do it. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of electrical sound. When he's kind of chasing you through the ship. Sean, soundtracks then, what are the, the key points? But no, I think a lot of it is, uh, is is quite minimalistic. It is, it is. And outside of the savoury music and obviously the uh, Rise track and the, the Heroes Never Die music, which is also the basis of the save room theme, there isn't a great deal of music. It is generally more atmospheric audio which is in keeping with tends to be where resident evil is now you know where music is more minimalist you know if you play resident evil 7 the music is very very minimalist and it only sort of kicks in for key themes and key moments did this start in dead aim i'm not saying it did but it's, it's interesting that this is probably the first game we recognize it for doing it I, th- I think the music to this game is exceptional there's not a lot of it um and certainly we're not in an era where like you know each boss has its own theme or anything like that it it does it doesn't hurt the game because w- what it lacks in music it makes for in atmosphere and no one expected that from a gun survivor game no rob what about you any sound soundtracks or pieces of music that spoke to you not necessarily i mean the sound design on this is is generally pretty good and and it's interesting you guys back during that stream picked out some of the audio background sound effects stuff that perhaps you hadn't noticed before i i think it's one of its more solid things it's it, it, <clears throat> it is a solid soundtrack, but there's nothing particular that stands out to me. There's eleven yeah, tracks. I'm just looking at the soundtrack. Like, and, then, and then, and then they licensed, you know, actual music for for part of the promo as well. So that's probably the most iconic of all of them, really. <laughs> The Pluto track I remember being quite funny, mainly because of the sound, the uh, the sound effects of Pluto. The when <laughs> he comes after you, never never makes me uh, laugh, cry with laughter. I think he's one of the most funniest boss fights. But that, that's got a, quite a good soundtrack when we played it. Because you, you can play that really stealthily and that works really well. Yeah, again, it's less of a piece of music though, more just of a, a repetitive tone to set the mood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it works, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't work. But overall, I think I think we, we are in agreement. It's a good uh, it's a good thing. And as I said, on your recent stream, we picked up on a few different sound effects, which really do add to it. Um, you know, as the ship, the ship moving was a particular highlight on my recent playthrough as well. Um, I appreciate a lot of these older games a bit more. because I've got a slightly better sound system rather than listening to through CRT TVs. I can, you know, I can listen to them decent speakers and you do, you do pick up on a lot of this and um it, it's good it's good they've put a lot of a lot of thought in it and you know, the, the kind of water sound effects the fire is really good you know that all sounds really nice when you're getting close to it and and, and as i said who doesn't love rise gunshot shot 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 you know an absolute classic 
all day. Right, we are coming towards the end, and I wanted to um, kind of end our main discussion just to, as a kind of in, in a reflective state on on Dead Aim because we've we've touched upon so much here. It, you know, we've talked about how the game plays and how it feels, and um, you know, the bosses, BOWs. Um, the storyline in particular still ho- still resonates, I think, um, albeit could be deemed as unnecessary in the in the in the in the wider law. But you know, that, that, we'll leave that to the to, to our listeners to see what they think if they um, how important they think it is. But we do praise Dead Aim quite a lot, and you, you can hear from the discussions where you know where you can see those little tidbits of you know of of the game being you know ideas being used in future titles. And I think you know people may be unaware that uh, i think one of the original resident evil 3s was going to be set on a boat um i think with hunk wasn't it was it i can't remember there's been so many rob you're probably more like three, three three or four depending on your timeline spacing yes yes i'm not saying they used assets from it far from it but they, they obviously used that idea to you know to kind of bring it together but i, I you know we, we we like to praise it and, and i think what we've discussed today is that there's a lot of happy coincidences and perhaps that's a nice two-word summary of resident evil dead aim it's a happy coincidence in that it came along at the right time for playstation owners it was half decent and it brings a lot of joy to a lot of people just because it does a lot of things right and retrospectively works quite well. Uh, perhaps not the original intent, but, you know, for a quick hour and a half, two hour romp in, 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 in familiar Resident Evil scenarios and, you know, and, and location themes. I, I, I still love it. I still love this game. I, I, I And I always put it in my near, near to the top tier list for me personally. I, it, it's hard not to like it, and I and I don't get it when people say it's crap because it's not crap. It's not. It, it's not terrible. It, and when people say like Survivor One's terrible, I get that. I get it. it. You know, tank controls first person doesn't necessarily work that well. The gun com on that is atrocious. The voice acting is appalling, and the graphics are pretty substandard at that point in time. I, I like Survivor One. We all like. We, we've talked about that a lot. But I can see why people say that's a poor game. Dead Aim is not a poor game. It's budget, yes. It's off the wall. It's quirky and it's got some ridiculous ideas at times, but it does set a foundation for what we do see. And, you know, with like Village and Seven and, you know, this kind of first person, third person kind of mix, the more action orientated approach. Gory, very, very gory as well. It, it deserves a second look. And I, I, I'm upset that it is stuck on PlayStation 2. It, re- it really is a travesty and it should be available because I think if people did go back to it now and if they got their head around the controls, and I know that's a big sticking point for a lot of people nowadays, you know, people want modern controls, um, otherwise, it, it, you know, it's unplayable and it's like, it's not, you just get used to it and, you, 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 and you'll be fine. I think it, it deserves a little appraisal and it's a shame we don't have many more of these games. Uh, I, I think we've talked about the last kind of real B-side RE game was Revelations 2. And, wow. you know, well, I'm not, inclu- yeah. I'm not including Umbrella Chronicle, um, Umbrella Corpse, because that's C-rated. But um, <laughs> you know what I mean. And this was, you know, this is a, this is a a decent spinner. I mean, in you know, I can't remember what I scored it in episode four. But you know, for me, it's a seven. I don't know about what everyone else thinks. And 
and I still think it holds up perfectly fine. I don't, I don't, I don't think time has, time has been good to it, but I don't think time has been bad to it. I, I think it's stayed exactly where it was, and it knows exactly what it wanted to do, and it's done it well. Well, you mentioned Revelations 2, and what a beautiful lead-in, because I just briefly want to talk about the fact that we've talked about the fact that Dead Aim is a bit of a legacy title in terms of, you know, it, it introduced a few things that we saw the mainline series do and you you mentioned revelations 2 there thank you very much you did it before i did and i said earlier that revelations 2 was going to get mentioned again today and revelations 2 introduced a few things it was one of the first games that introduced like the crafting mechanics in the resident evil series you know we could combine you know multiple items in the in the way that you could do in the last of us and you could combine a green herb with something and or combine it with something else to do this thing and we've seen that expanded in the numbered titles and most recently this year you saw resident evil 4 that literally lifted the stealth mechanics system from revelations 2 yeah you can make a case that it was borrowed originally from the last of us and whatnot but if we're just talking the resident evil series the stealth mechanic that we saw in resident evil 4 remake is extremely similar if not the same that we had in revelations 2 so when people say to me oh you know why why are you so sad about the remakes you know we're still getting a remake and a new game alternating more or less here and there because what saddens me about the remakes is they've replaced the spin-offs like dead aim and and revelations and what dead aim and what revelations allowed this series to do was experiment it was it was it it was a sub-series that allowed capcom to go let's try some weird shit with this series yeah. let's put a stealth mechanic in a game and let's see if it works and in revelations 2 I guess they kind of decided at some point it worked because they literally imported it into RE4. And now we live in an era where we have no spin-offs. We have the core numbered titles and we have the remakes and we have no spin-offs outside of like Reverse and Resistance, which are their own things anyway. You know, they're, they're doing the sort of multiplayer thing. Without spin-offs, we don't have a Capcom that is, you know, unafraid to experiment with taking this series in outlandish and different directions. And this is what I've always said about Dead Aim was even back in 2003, it represented a Capcom that was prepared to take the series and apply something different to it and, and try something different. And if it didn't work, then it was a spin-off. And if it failed and if, if it didn't perform financially, it didn't matter because it was a spin-off. Whereas now it feels like we live in a Capcom era where every single game has to deliver. Not just critically, but financially. You know, So the remakes have to deliver because they've got the legacy that they have to live up to. And a new number title has to give everybody what they want from the hunger of having a brand new Resident Evil title. With no spin-offs, you can't ever try something new, you can't do something clever, you can't try an interesting new gameplay mechanic, and if it doesn't fucking work, it doesn't matter. And that's what Dead Aim represents to me. It represented a Capcom that just went, we've got a Resident Evil game, should we just try this shit? Should we just try something? You know, and if it doesn't work, who cares? People will just write it off as a Survivor game, which most people do. Revelations, you can just turn around and say, I don't like Resident Revelations 2, blah, 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 and all this. Capcom today have set themselves up in an era where they cannot fail. And I do wonder whether that means we will not truly get any kind of innovation now moving forward. Because they have allowed themselves an environment where they can't afford to mess up. And, that, and that's a shame. And I think that's the biggest blow 
the remakes have dealt upon this series is that we will probably never ever get a dead aim under the current re- remake era. I do wonder if that is endemic of perhaps the the rising costs of video games as well. I wonder. Likely so, and, yeah. and but that's, but that's what spin-offs offer. It offers you the chance to do something interesting without spending a great deal of money. No one would ever look at this series and say Revelations Two cost a lot of money. Because I think it very much didn't, did it? In, in, in I know it cost a lot of money in terms of Com- game compared to yeah, but com- compared to a mainline title, no. Yeah, yeah. It, it it it's it's closer to an indie title sort of development. Well, even then, it's not. It's still a big budget title. Interesting. No, really, really interesting thoughts, Rob. What's your take? I think Sean's made some valid points there, and I and I think we we to look at the success of spin-offs that have done well as to why they are also necessary because they kind of can give more life to the franchise and keep it fresh and keep it in memory and and so within there are times when it when the main titles are still in development. But that, the other thing is that Capcom has pivoted sometimes from taking some of these side stories and fleshing them into actual mainline titles as well, which is when you don't even have those plans, then as Sean also alluded to correctly, every title has to be a success. Every title has to has to prove its worth. I mean, yeah, the online titles are literally basically more or less network tests. They, they're approving that a, a stable gaming network can happen and that they've just built something around them and, and that's why they're they're not really true spin-offs that revelations 2 is the last one and i i find it unlikely now in the era of remakes that we're going to see any spin-offs anytime soon if ever again much like sean has said as well so, so things like dead aim are, are definitely going to become the minority and we, we will be even more forgotten in, in the long run unfortunately by newer players especially by its ability to be not really easily accessed so i guess the point is if, if you're curious and want to try something a little bit different you can always go back and play this and and have fun like it's a it's it's not a groundbreaking title it's not um going to be stunningly amazing but you'll have some fun and and it's a solid title for what it is even if it is a bit clunky in areas and a little bit undercooked in others but it's it is fun and that and that's why we we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it if if that wasn't the case. Batman, what about you? Overall conclusions, would you recommend the title to people? Yeah, certainly. I would always recommend it. It's uh, like Rob and Sean and yourself have said, there's there's plenty of good things about it. It's a fun little game. These spin-off titles are a thing of the past. Very slowly but surely, it's been lost to the the passage of time and it all comes down to accessibility, you know. I just wish Capcom would give us the you know the long-awaited classics edition and put the first three games on there and the gun survivor games the only way people are going to play dead aim is if capcom make it more accessible to people you know not everyone has a pc not everyone can emulate things not everyone wants to and unfortunately not many people have a ps2 these days so it's just slowly being lost to the the passing of time and that's a sad thing but that's sort of down to capcom being the victims of their own success because the franchise is still going so strongly all these years later but yeah overall dead aim it's a fun little game if you can play it i would certainly recommend you do i think we've covered a lot of key points tonight on the storyline and its importance to uh, the behind the scenes events of the sort of 2002 in-game timeline yeah i don't think i can really add anything else as to what you guys have already said give it a go if you can get it Yes, please, please do. And I, I, I echo what you say. Um, Classics Collection Volume 1, the original trilogy. Classics Collection Volume 2 would be Survivor 1, Survivor 2, Survivor 4. Uh, obviously, Survivor 3 is Dino Crisis. 
would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, certainly for Americans who didn't get Survivor 2, not that that's, you know, it's not, not as I say, it's all about accessibility. It's all about keeping these games alive. And, you know, and you, and you can see what Konami, you know, not the, not the greatest developer at the, at the moment, uh, come under a lot of criticism. You know, the Metal Gear Solid collection, fantastic. And if the rumours are true about, you know, Volume 2, what's going to be on that? You know, if, if they chuck on uh, Portable Ops, uh, Ghost Babel and uh, Peace Walker on the next one. No, hell, if they put in go- um, Guns of the Patriots, that's only ever been on PS3. Yeah, so. that's fantastic. It'll sell like hotcakes because people want to be able to play these old games, even if, yeah. you know, I mean, no one's dying to play Ghost Babel on Game Boy Color, for example. But well, they absolutely are, Nick. Are they? Okay. <laughs> the, the thing is, so the other, this is going to be go off tangent a little bit, but like still relevant. Like the other week, I found there's a Bill and Ted's Retro Collection on PS4, and it has some an NES game and some Game Boy <laughs> games on it. Like, I who was clamoring for that? But somebody did it, and it plays. What the hell? Amazing! Like more of that please absolutely no it is and you know it is game preservation yeah. keeping it keeping it alive that's the important thing and as you say dead aim and is just coming lost the, the nope. greatest the greatest gift nami will ever give us with this mgs volume one mega master collection is the fact that it will be a wake-up call for capcom i think genuinely because you know the fact that they're in, even including the NES games, including yes. Snake's Revenge, yeah, yeah. I didn't even massive. know. What, I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know what Snake yeah. had to ask. What's Snake, Snake's in, Revenge? <laughs> including Snake's Revenge is every bit as including like the GameCom version of Resident Evil Two. Yeah, you've got know. like the interactive <laughs> comments and uh, comics and the scripts yeah. as well. I mean, for a, for a company like Konami, who've had so much criticism over the last decade, this is going to generate so much goodwill if it, yeah. you know, if it plays well. And all it does is just put the spotlight on Capcom to say, where the fuck are these original three titles? Where right. are they? We because... saw from the last showcase that they are doing it with titles like Ace Attorney, so you've got to yeah. think it's inevitable. Yeah. 30th they've anniversary. Done with, they've done it with our uh, Street Fighter as well. They've done Street Fighter collections as well. So, yeah. Um, um, and what Capcom, are, uh, sorry, what Konami are proud of is the fact that they've not only announced a Snake Eater remake, but on the same day they announced that the classic Snake Eater will be coming to your consoles as well. So if you don't like the direction the remake's taking, you're going to have the original available to play as well. And isn't that just perfect? Isn't that all anybody ever wants? One of the reasons why I think we were so lean in criticism in, in, in the Resident Evil 4 remake is because we acknowledge that for the first time ever you can play the remake and its original game on the same console, in, and we're talking about the PS4 here, but you know, you can literally line up in the folders the original and the remake, and no one is bothered because on whatever any, what any given day you feel, I want to play this one or I want to play this one. You can't do that with Resident Evil 2 or Resident Evil 3. You can kind of do it with the original now, thank you to you know the PlayStation backwards compat system they offer, but 2 and 3 are still lost. And what makes it even more amusing is that it, it can't cost a lot of money. It, it cannot cost a lot of money to chuck them on a disc. In, in terms of like the, you know, the PlayStation Network, they exist already. 
Yes. Yeah. So all it, all it's a case is is Sony just flicking a switch and making it available on PS4 and 5 because from what from what people understand it's exactly the same emulator. The only thing it is done is it's a slightly updated version in that it allows rewind gameplay on the and PS4. And save states and yeah, and regions and region selection. But I imagine that is only a bolt-on from what they offered on the PS3 anyway. You know, it's not a grand yeah. edition. From Capcom's point of view, the only the only difficulty I think they would ever do is from you know they, they could easily do a Survivor collection. You know, chucking Gaiden as well if they want. You know, it, it's not. It's not... Well, no yeah, one. Really honest, who would buy it? Not many, but it, as you said, it would. As John said, that, that feeling of goodwill. And game preservation. The only, uh, so the only one I'd, I'd probably Capcom off would be um, Outbreak because they, they they couldn't just bring back Outbreak without bringing back servers and things like that. And that's where that's where the cost would almost certainly arise if they're going to do Outbreak. It's the only game I would think they should do it almost like a remastered or dare I say a remake version. I think they need to do that properly. Mm. So I, I'd let them off on that one, but. You know, they could do a, um, a collection with, as I said, Survivor 1, Survivor 2, Gaiden, Dead Aim, Umbrella Chronicles, Dark Side Chronicles as a kind of shooter action collection. Put it on limited run games or something, you know, just have it as a digital download, fine, you know, and that will just make money for them, albeit a sh- small amount. But if a physical release, just do it on limited run or something. It would be vast, hugely popular and more people will get to play Dead Aim and I swear... Out of all the games on the collection, Dead Aim would generate a lot more interest, and it wouldn't be lost to time as it is now. We've ended on a really depressing note. I'm really upset about. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's because we. It's not that we don't share the sentiment of your enthusiasm, Nick, but we. But Sean has nailed it. It's like who who would purchase? You have to you have to put it in the business sense of like yeah. it has to be a collection that makes it make sense. Like if it was a collection of like all Resident Evil titles, like the PS One, so you have Resident Evil One, Two, and Three. Plus the variations, so you'd have director's cut, director's cut, dual shock, dual shock for two, uh, Dreamcast version of Resident Evil Two with nightmare mode. You would have to have three, obviously, and then it'd have, you'd have your survivors and all that. Then maybe it would be worthwhile because you're collecting everything together. But I think just a series of spin-off t- <coughs> spin-off titles by itself probably wouldn't sell too greatly. No. And this is why when people go, "Oh, the game that needs the remake the most is Dead Aim or Survivor," it's like, yeah, probably, but. No one would get excited in the slightest about surviving. No, I, I, I could just imagine, you know, some conference or like streaming event, and all of a sudden there's like, a, you know, Southern Fried, you know, Bruce McGivern accent, Spencer Rain shot, you know, and everyone's like, oh, dead aim, what is expecting this? No, it's never going to happen like that. No. <laughs> As much, as much as we'd like. So the bottom line is great little game if you can get your hands on it. Have a go, you might you might enjoy it, and it is it, it's pure spin-off material. But oh my god, it's 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 the better for it. That does finish our retrospective look back on Dead Aim. I think we all we've all had a, a, a an enjoyable time reminiscing about this, and I hope for people, perhaps newer listeners and newer fans of the series, can get a bit of a feel as to where the community was kind of at uh, back in back in two thousand and three, uh, and how how this game still shining a little bit. We now though turn our attention to a Dead Aim themed special of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Do you know your G-Virus from your C-Virus? And your Jabberwock from your Bandersnatch? 
or perhaps the number of bombs that appear on the Made in Heaven vest. We've talked about the games straying too far from the origins, this Resident Evil quiz. We're now getting Spice Girls as the correct answer, I mean, it's time to quit. This is Neptune's Biohazard Quiz! Welcome everyone to the quiz. It is dead aim theme. It's quite easy one, I'm afraid, this week. So uh, I'm expecting some high schools. Not too difficult. So you can close your windows. You can open up this. Uh, open up Notepad. Let's go. So the first question one: True or false? The elite hunter is the name of the hunter you encounter in Dead Aim. Is that true or is it false? Question two is a timeline question. On what date are the T-virus samples stolen from Paris? Question number three. What weapon do you find in the captain's quarters on the Spencer Rain? Question number four. How do you unlock the charged particle rifle so that it can be used throughout the game? And question number five. How long was the criminal Alpha held at the island before the ghastly experiment began on him? Poor chap. Held by umbrella. How long? There are the questions, so let's see how well everyone has done. So question number one was a true or false question. The Elite Hunter is the name of the hunter you encounter in Dead Aim. Is that true or is it false? Stars Tyrant. I want to say true, but I think it's wrong. I don't know why I think it's wrong, but I think it's wrong. What are we going for? Are you going true or false? I go true. You're going to go true. Okay. Romby, is it true or false? Mm, I'm going with true. Batman. Uh, I don't know if you try to catch us out here. I'm going to say false. It is false. It is false. I'm afraid the elite hunter is not in Resident Evil Dead Aim, but the hunter elite is. Yeah. Now I'm not. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. No, 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 Thank you. The elite yeah. hunter is in Operation I was, I was going to ask you, I was going to literally ask you to repeat the question and ask you if you meant elite hunter or hunter elite, and I, and I didn't, and I, and I fucking wish I did now, because that is, that is bullshit. And I'm, I'm, I'm deleting my entire notepad, and I don't give a fuck about this quiz anymore. You fuck off. I don't even come to me for any more questions. <laughs> Point to Batman there, yes. So hang on, let me, let me clear this right the right way. So Hunter Elite is the Dead Aim one, and Elite yep. Hunter is. I knew yeah, this okay. what he was doing. I knew it. I fucking Classic. knew it. And he and he's Bastard. and he's all my bluff. And I'm. I, I try not to wear on these I, podcasts I'm gonna, anymore. I'm going to argue that I knew 
I'm going to argue that I knew that and I was complete, but I also didn't know which one was which. So it's you're, you're complicit annoyed. in his behavior, Rob, and you're just. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying it's a good answer. I mean, fucking, it's an annoyingly, stupidly trick question. But I knew what he once he once I figured out what he was actually asking. I'm like, Not fuck, Nick I'm even make up. a non-controversial quiz into absolute disrepute. I just don't know. <laughs> Bastard. Back to normality then. Question number two was the timeline question. On what date are the T-virus samples stolen in Paris? Rumby. Oh, I couldn't remember. No idea. That one completely slipped my head. Any guess? Any guess? Oh. You're, not bad. You're not bad at your guesses, though. Sometimes. No, I've got nothing. Still, Taren? No, I have no idea. I guess. And I know, I know Dead Aim's timeline pretty well, but to, to lock me down to a, a literal specific date like this, I, I don't know. I've got too much shit going on. <laughs> 18th, 18th of September, 2002. Spot on. <laughs> is there any surprise? <laughs> it is the 18th of September, 2002. Correct. Well done. Well done. There we go. Question number three: What weapon do you find in the captain's quarters, Batman? Uh, the Magnum. Star Siren. Um, so, so we're completely clear, Nick, that we've covered all bases. We're going for the semi-automatic Magnum, the Desert Eagle, the Lightning Hawk, or the Magnum. I presume I have not got it wrong <laughs> with all those answers <laughs> I've given you. Rombi. <laughs> the, the Magnum. <laughs> Well, technically, no, yeah, the Magnum. But <laughs> well done, yes. I was looking for the Magnum there. Very good. Uh, amusingly, Sean, you continued your, your, your streak on the recent um, uh, playthrough of missing the grenade launcher, which you did, uh, which you've done both yeah, Survivor yeah. streams. Excellent. Yeah, but no, you, you, you got the Magnum. Well done. Points all around there. Well done. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Question number four was, how do you unlock the charged particle rifle so that you can use it throughout the game? What, what do you have to do? So another achievement question. We've had a few of these. Batman, did you know this one? Um, I don't actually know it. I All I can remember is it's locked in like a little chamber and do you just have to find a key to unlock it or is that too simple? No, 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 no. The question, how, how do you unlock the charged particle rifle so you can use it? Because you can only use it. Oh, but, right. Uh, I see. Um, oh, I don't know. Complete the game in under three hours. That seems to be the standard. Okay, game in under three hours. Uh, Rombi, did you know? I think you just have to finish the hard mode. Okay, start starting. You have to S rank the hard mode. Mm, points to Rob. You just got to complete the game on hard mode. No, um... I contest that fucker <laughs> endlessly. No, I finished this game. You, you, that is bullshit. I'm not having this fucker. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm Are not, you, sure? you you go back to your whatever guide you look at. <laughs> I I have finished this on every difficulty. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, I'm telling you, it's S rank hard. But have S-rank you always hard. got S rank? Hey, have you always got S rank? No, and I haven't unlocked it on every playthrough. But when I did it, I did it on S rank hard. I did unlock the charged particle rifle. This is a cracking GT impression from Sean tonight. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Uh, where would I I'm find not having this, Nick? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to contest this to the hell. I'm fine. No, let's contest. No, that's fine. That's fine. Let's um, pause and find it. If you uh, if you S rank on normal. You unlock everything except the charged particle rifle. It's only on hard. Yeah, I'm double checking it. He's right. He's right. I know it's hard mode. I know you've got a complete game on hard mode. No, beat the game on S rank when hard mode starts with all weapons and unlimited ammo. If you get anything less, you get all weapons except for the charged particle rifle. Uh, okay. Oh, well, there we go. 
<laughs> so Sean is oh, correct. You know, this is well researched each week. Isn't it? <laughs> I'm looking for that Anchorman meme that oh, this ex- escalated quickly. <laughs> Points to Stars Tyrant. Well done. Yes, complete the game on hard mode with an S rank. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I, I feel like I don't even want to give you. The, I, I feel like I don't even want the point now. It feels wasted. Let's just, just fuck off. <laughs> Uh, what's that what was that what was that um i'm trying to omni shambles of a quiz omni shambles (laughs) of a quiz has come back i think you've got all your uh your clips you need for next season's quiz jingle anyway (laughs) question number five was how long was the criminal alpha held at the island before the ghastly experiments began on him batman do you know uh four days four days okay stars turn Oh, I thought it was three days. Uh, Rombi? I have no idea. I'm going with five days. It's a month. A month. <laughs> a month. Yes, he's been, he's been captured for a month before they started to do the, um, do the work. Now you, make me, que- now you make me question it all, though. You're fuck like, off, Nick. Fuck off. Fuck off. I'm not having this. Fuck <laughs> off. It is a month, yes. Sh- it- shove your quiz up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> So let's have a look at the final scores. And this podcast winner with a respectable three out of five, it's Batman. Way, thank you. In second place. <laughs> <laughs> second place with two out of five is Stars Tyrant. And Romby, who lost the point because of Stars Tyrant's intervention, uh, is Romby with the one. Hey, I, I agreed with him once I looked it up. <laughs> I, looked I, it even, up I, like, I don't right. even know how I got the two out of five, to be honest. Are you sure that's correct? Because I think I've only got one. Magnum. Oh, my God. oh yeah, okay, yeah. There we go. So there we go. that concludes Neptune's Calamitous Quiz. Join us next time when we'll have some more questions. Brilliant. So thank you everyone for listening. We are rapidly uh, finishing our Dead Aim retrospective. I hope everyone has uh, enjoyed our in-depth discussions and the an amusing anecdote at the end. Coming up next, we will be reviewing the latest CGI film, Resident Evil Death Island. And because we go the extra mile here at REP, I can uh, now reveal that, Batman, you are going to do some field research and you are off to San Francisco, you're off to Alcatraz on the time of release of this of this film. Yep. Uh, thanks very much to the Patreons for funding this trip. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, disclaimer, disclaimer, there's no Patreon money has gone towards this trip. But yeah, it's just a, a happy coincidence. It's going to be really cool to go around Alcatraz, and I shall look for Dylan's laboratory and aquatic liquors and all that sort of thing. I'll very much try to get a Chris Redfield Hawaiian shirt as well. <laughs> yes, we need some photographs. That will be uh, towards end of July, August time. We'll be reviewing Death Island. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed Dead Aim. It is goodbye for me, Neptune. Goodbye for me, Batman. Goodbye for me, South Tyrant. And goodbye for me, Robbie. We can only live